The lives and deaths of the stars seem impossibly remote from human experience, and yet we're related in the most intimate way to their life cycles. The very matter that makes us up was generated long ago and far away in red giant stars. A blade of grass, as Walt Whitman said, is the journey work of the stars. The formation of the solar system may have been triggered by a nearby supernova explosion. After the sun turned on, its ultraviolet light poured into our atmosphere, its warmth generated lightning, and these energy sources sparked the origin of life. Plants harvest sunlight, converting solar into chemical energy. We and the other animals are parasites on the plants, so we are, all of us, solar-powered. The evolution of life is driven by mutations. They're caused partly by natural radioactivity and cosmic rays, but they are both generated in the spectacular deaths of massive stars thousands of light years distant. Think of the sun's heat on your upturned face on a cloudless summer's day. From 150 million kilometers away, we recognize its power. What would we feel on its seething, self-luminous surface or immersed in its heart of nuclear fire? And yet, the sun is an ordinary, even a mediocre star. Our ancestors worshiped the sun and they were far from foolish. It makes good sense to revere the sun and the stars because we are their children. We have witnessed the life cycles of the stars. They are born, they mature, and then they die. As time goes on, there are more white dwarfs, more neutron stars, more black holes. The remains of the stars accumulate as the eons pass. But interstellar space also becomes progressively enriched in heavy elements, out of which form new generations of stars and planets, life and intelligence. The events in one star can influence a world halfway across the galaxy and a billion years in the future. Something about the nature of reality and the nature of human existence that has to do with kind of a dual nature of reality. There's a physical world and there's a non-ordinary reality world. Okay guys, welcome back to the Grimerica Show. Uh, we are going to be chatting with Mr. Dave Matheson a little bit later. Um, finally, after some struggles trying to get together. Uh, but first, as always, Gamless Graham Dunlop. How's it going, buddy? Hey, man. <laughs> nice. Nice work. What did you say? Gamless? Gamless. Gamless? Yeah. Uh, did you know the Open Minds guys do this too? Alejandro and Jason always do that. What you do. Do they? they? call me something different. Alejandro calls Jason something different at the beginning. And you don't even listen to them, do you? So you're not even copying them. No. No. So now you got to explain the definition to people? No, they got to look it up. That's how I Gomas? get them. Is okay. They have to look it up. All I'm right. not going to give the explanations anymore. And then if they do, they learn a new word. You don't look it up during the show. I okay. don't need you pissed off during the show. <laughs> that one was actually recommended by Dave personally. So, Oh, cool. Okay. Thanks, David Zare. 
One of our biggest listeners. Yeah, he's been around since day one. Yeah. Pretty much, eh? Crazy. Yeah, well, this is our 99th episode. Yeah, so welcome to Gramerica. Yeah, welcome to Gramerica. So we're going to do 101. <laughs> we're going to do a special, just me and Graham. We're not going to do 101 only. We're on 101. We're going to do a special episode. Yes. I think they would have picked that up. <clears throat> Probably. Actually, RPJ was worried at first that we were only going to do 100. Yeah. He's so sensitive. Yeah. I guess we- it's hard because we're always just texting with him. He can't. Yeah. Like, he doesn't really know our mannerisms enough to know that I'm just fucking with him. Yeah. yeah. I Sorry, did, Red. I did want to say a couple of housekeeping things, too. Now I'm trying to remember. Oh, yeah. So, like, we do this little intro before the interview starts. So, for people that are new, we just have lazy ramblings. Uh, most people seem to like it, but some of you may not. So, if you don't, or if it doesn't resonate with you, just skip on forward to the interview if you're interested in the subject more than our lazy ramblings. Ah, oh, get over it. I'm just trying to explain okay. the format to new new listeners, right? We have new listeners all the time, so. Yeah, we have been yeah. getting a lot of new listeners lately. And we want to thank everybody for the feedback and the emails, and sometimes I feel like I've responded and I haven't, and so uh, I do. we do read them all, but and we try and respond to all of them, but some sometimes it slips through the cracks. It's kind of hard to manage everything, actually. Yeah, the YouTube's really been taking off. Has it? Yeah. 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 That's good. Thanks yeah. for doing that, buddy. Yeah, well, don't thank me. Thank Jim. Oh, yeah. Jim, Jim Fuller's been going around from comment thread to comment thread and all over the place spreading the good word of Grimerica. Jim Fuller, thanks, buddy. Yeah, I think he's he's single-handedly reeled us in uh, probably over, over 100 subscribers. So thanks, Jim. Appreciate the hard work. Now, only if everybody could do that, we'd be oh, Exactly, exactly. See, if Jim can get 100, then I challenge everyone else to get two. Now, now didn't you sort of figure this out by just putting some weird pieces together yeah 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 I, it was a comment he made with a number and the date and it was him tracking his uh his own success at promoting the show Sweet. so then i figured it out and then i did some more research and i found him spreading the word all over so we appreciate it you know that's that's, awesome. that's uh, one of the best ways to support the show really is yeah. uh, getting other people to listen because there's no real advertising in podcasting people are either stumble upon us on youtube or on itunes that's by true, searching yeah. for a random guest we've had on before or searching a keyword. So, you know, the chances of finding us that way are, well, actually, they're not bad. But still, more likely that uh, is word of mouth. You know, that's probably accounts for at least 70 or 80% of growth in yeah. podcasting is word of mouth until you get to the point where you're on the iTunes homepage. Yeah, exactly. And, and we're doing pretty good on the iTunes front, and all your reviews on iTunes really help those algorithms. Um, we want to. Actually, speaking of that, it's hard to read these out because it sounds, it really feels like egotistical, but Lonely Boy 16, mind equals blown. Thanks for the rating on that, buddy. That was uh, really, really appreciate it. And uh, AZ Mountain Man says, not your average podcast. And, you know, really good uh, review there too. So appreciate the reviews on, on iTunes. Were those from iTunes, Darren? iTunes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that really helps. Yeah, um, iTunes reviews and ratings help. It, it does feel weird reading them out loud, but those are really nice reviews. Thanks, guys. Yeah, we just, appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, yeah, like real recent ones. Like, I think they just come in the last couple of days. So, Yeah, responding to last week's call out for reviews. That's because I said reviews are as good as donations, even though you disagree. Uh, well, donations help me because every month I have money coming out of my visa <laughs> for stuff. That's true. <laughs> 
And we don't want to, and the other thing is we don't want to do ads or no corporate sponsorship. So it's really like value for value model. And we have this thing called the 50, 50 money bomb draw that every month we gift back uh 50% of our donations to a listener. You don't even have to, to uh, donate to be entered. You can just send a postcard to the PO box. Yeah, exactly. It helps offset our things. And that's another thing we vowed never to sell our content here. So we'll never have a plus subscription or anything like that. Every interview we ever do or every episode we ever record will be out there free for everybody. Yeah. So hopefully it works. I mean, it seems it's working slowly, but surely I think, but you know, yeah, uh, absolutely. And people contribute in all sorts of different ways, right? Donate, review, spread the word. Yeah. Jingles, music. All sorts of different ways. Yeah. You can help the show. Yeah. Newsletters. Huck Justin does the newsletter for Yeah, him. sign up Wayne for the newsletter. Leave a voicemail. Yeah, grammarica.ca slash news. We got Wayne Darnell doing our web page for us. So. Yeah, thanks, Wayne. That's huge. Yeah. Some of our favorite jingles. Stick in your head jingles. Yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> I guarantee us a few people have been whistling a few of them at work. <laughs> um, what else was I going to say? But that vow. Remind me to go back there. There's Darren trying to surprise me with the profound UFO quote of the week jingle. Oh, this is a good one. All over the world, credible witnesses are reporting experiences similar to mine. Holding these people up to ridicule does not alter the existing facts. The time is long overdue for accepting the presence of these things, whatever they are, and dealing with them and the public on a basis of realism. That's from Frank Halstad former curator of Darling Observatory, University of Minnesota. Minnesota? Yeah. Huh. Did you get the uh, why I picked that one? No, I was too focused on making sure the jingle worked properly. <laughs> I don't really trust the jingle setup yet. It was from an observatory and David Matheson on this episode talks about the undying Oh, stars. that's right. Yeah. This is the fucking episode where we're going to be talking about Scott Russell is going to love this shit. Oh, yeah? Because this is, we're going to talk about the cosmology. Oh, right, the everything. Bible, yeah. yeah. He's going to eat this shit up. This, Scott, is, this is going to be a crazy synchronicity. Is it? You think so? Yeah. Because we get great some... from that, now this is going to come out. Yeah, we get some great feedback from Scott Russell. So this is a real fun show with David Matheson and talking about uh, the stars and the symbolism. And, and yeah, It always seems it's funner with the guys that listen to the show. Yeah, which are both those guys. So Scott and David should get together too. <laughs> <laughs> Scott Russell is the guy that just we had his episode come out last, I think, right uh, on the Coral yeah, it's Castle. Generating a lot so, of buzz on the YouTube already. I hope so. I've yeah. had one person actually, uh, longtime listener, says he's got another theory. He thinks that maybe that's how Ed quarried the stones or cut them, but he says there's still some secret tech behind the movement behind mm. moving them or making them seem like they're ten pounds instead of tons. Mm. And he says he knows a guy. But he, what he said, the only reason this guy's never come, come forward is because he's, uh, doesn't want to be monitored 24 seven and shit. We're it's all some, monitored 24 yeah. seven now. So yeah, it's, it's some no old time come army forward. engineer anyway. Well, now he can so come I forward. Offered, I said, if you can get him, come on, we'll fucking, I'll find some voice app that he can put on Skype that changes his voice or I can, I can change his, the audio of his voice or something, right? Distorted enough that nobody could ever recognize him. Yeah, or he could. S J W I Z Q three J D P U. Or he could talk, talk like my voice dream. Oh. Like Stephen Hawking. <laughs> no, that was uh, 
that's that was better, Rachel. That's better quality. Yeah. So, anyways, yeah. I mean, hey, we're all monitored now, anyway. So, what's, what's the, the difference? difference? <laughs> okay, now you can finish your thought before the UFO quote. Oh, what thought was that? I don't know. Something oh, it's like you said we vow and never to do that, right? About charging for episodes. That's pretty. Like I agree with you, but those are pretty strong words. So I don't know if we would vow never to do anything. Really, it's too late now. <laughs> So speaking of, uh, did we talk about synchronicity? Like you said the other day, though, the podcast ad things is going to come tumbling down sooner or later here anyway. I agree. Do you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. I think that these people that are getting lots of money for ads, I think that whole structure is going to, soon it will be realized that you can't really track who's listening to these shows. Yeah. And I don't think ads are going to work anymore. So we want to pump up the value for value model, just like, like the no yeah, agenda show is on a couple shows. Doing it, yeah. Fucking, I think that's the thing is yeah. give it all out for free and count on the people that can't afford to support it or support it when you can. Right. Then it's not a payment. Someone doesn't have to worry about shelling out 10 bucks a month when they can't afford it. Yeah, exactly. It's like when they do have 10 bucks, they give 10 bucks and they don't have 10 bucks for another year. Exactly. You know, the next month someone else has 10 bucks or yeah. something along those lines. Or maybe we get into those micro payments. We'll talk about that more in the 101, uh, 101st episode. Yeah, we're going to get into all that in the 101st episode special. Yeah. And then at 101, we're going to start numbering them as well. Yeah. Because we didn't ever really think of logistics of having 100 episodes on iTunes and not being able to have people reference them by number. I don't think we thought we'd do 100 episodes. Yeah. Maybe. Well, I kind of, I guess I was hoping, but that's, yeah. Now, who knows how many we'll do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what else? Sky's the limit. About that? Mm. Oh yeah. Well, we want to thank the people that donated too, right? Do you have a Do you have a list of people or some people that you want to thank? We had some. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. I think what we'll do is instead of mentioning it every show, maybe we can just do it at the roundup at the end of the month. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll never say amount. I don't think we'll ever say amounts or anything like that. No, we'll just list the names. Yeah. You know who you are. You know who you are. Yeah. <laughs> um. So we will be doing the money bomb at the end of this month, which will be in a couple Yeah, of it'll be the biggest money bomb ever. We got yeah. a couple of big donations yeah. this month, yeah. so it's great. Yeah, Everything's good. looking up in 2015. Yeah, that's awesome. Paul Hill, your episode went great. That comes out in a couple of weeks. Who's ne- uh, I guess we can get into all that shit in the outro. You got any synchros? I haven't crushed any dreams. I quit smoking a couple of days ago, too, so it might be. I don't know if I'm harsher or less harsh. You're doing pretty good. Actually, your attitude seems to be good. You seem chipper. That's because I have this e-cigarette. Is that because you're constantly smoking an e-cigarette, so you're, nic- you're just constantly nicotine buzzing? Yeah. You know you're going to have to kick nicotine eventually, right? That's the Yeah, well, for now, it. I'm just going to get rid of the fucking 20-year cigarette addiction, yeah. or the actual cigarette. So I, I figure I'll go to this, and then I can cut down the nicotine content till eventually it's just something in there that's flavored and not nicotine. And then hopefully get rid of that. Nice. Yeah. yeah. And by then, pot will be legal, hopefully. Are you gonna, it's going to take you 10 years to quit your smoking? Who knows? No, I think that's good. You know what? Actually, that, that uh, reminds me. We've got to do a show on the habit. There's a habit-breaking guy that uh, I want to have on. Yeah, that'd be, now would be the time. Yeah. Because I, I hate feeling the like The beauty about the e-cigarette. Habits. Is I can be sitting here smoking it in the studio. That's right. So bonus. So you got uh, what do you got? I got I got a funny one from uh, Atka Fifty Nine Synchro. 
No, it's just a little feedback. I think it's about uh, Randall Carlson's show. A letter? It's a, no, it's just, a, I think it's a tweet you sent me, uh, like a picture of a tweet or something. Oh, okay. Yes, the older Dryas was a shaky period in Earth's history where there wasn't enough standing water for proper bathing. This period ended in big trouble for the woolly mammoths due to the extreme difficulties they experienced reproducing. Peaking in a little-known recent discovered massive extinction that occurred when mammoth mating season coincided with a worldwide volcanic dust storm in an event called the Great Dry Hump. I think that's joke. I think he's messing with you. <laughs> Many clusters of linked mammoth bones have been unearthed in Wailing Trumpets, Washington, and Red Chafing Rock, Colorado. Red Chafing Rock, yeah. Colorado? That's a joke, too. In the big Great Dry Hump, yeah. And the older Dryas is a scam. Wailing Trumpets, get it? No. I don't get the reference. The woolly Mammoths? Oh, Wailing Trumpets? Anyways, he says that's leading credence to the theory. So I don't know if he thinks he's going to pull a wool over our eyes or what, but... Nice. <laughs> don't hit the table. Uh, so thanks for the comment. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. What do you got next? Uh... <clears throat> Well, I got. I threw off your whole game plan by throwing the UFO quote in there. So yeah, soon, kinda, didn't I? Yeah. So, I like it. So this is from uh, our listener who who sent the animated uh, Jeffson and stuff like that. He's a uh, you know, animation guy, Jack Cusimano. Jack Cusimano. What? Is it an email? Yes, it's an email. Do you have a jingle? We just got a letter. We just got a letter. We just got a letter. Wonder who it's from. No, that's a. This is an email, not a letter. Dan. We don't get any letters. He's well, trying to jingle. We call it letter. So he he says it's not really. He he says RPJ synchronicity question mark. And he says, okay, even I don't think this is necessarily a synchronicity, but I just realized something. I was googling RPJ for reference, thinking of drawing a cartoon version of his luchador persona. And one of the Google images results from a webcomic called 1930s Nightmare Theater from the site Dumb Comics. It's a comic by an old friend of mine, Ricky Garduno, Garduno, who eventually brought me in to draw my own regular comic on Dumb. I realized this image turned up on Google because RPJ used to comment regularly on Dumb. I even went back and found comments from him on my own stuff, dumbcomics.com. So weird to have interacted with RPJ in that capacity back then and now years later becoming a huge fan of his without remembering the previous Dumb Comics connection. Don't feel obliged to read this on the show since it's not that crazy of a story, but it really tripped me out. Ricky is no longer with us and I really miss this guy. I wouldn't have an animation career without his help. So it's cool there's a connection between him, Dumb Comics, and the world of Fortean content that I'm moving into now. From Jack. Well, I'm not going to rate it, but it's pretty cool. It's fucking cool. If it was anyone else but Red Pill Junkie, it would be a synchronicity. But the real synchronicity would be finding something on the internet that RPJ hasn't commented on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point. But no, that's pretty good. I'll give that a 5.42. I like it. Because it enjoys uh, it. follows the show. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I was checking out some of those GIFs today, too. Yeah, they're cool, eh? I yeah, wonder if there's cool. a way you could make a GIF the episode art. Yeah, probably. think? Yeah. Hmm. yeah. I wonder how you make a GIF. GIF? 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 Graham? 
Uh, oh, <clears throat> that's another G word for you there, buddy. We did it last week. Giffy Graham. Oh, I got something else for you here. So this is from Kurt Von Wanigan. Von. No, whoops. I, Von Wagenen. I got to be careful. I don't just pronounce these names like. I think An asshole. So he says, I, I just finished listening to the show on climate change. Another great subject. Another great episode on a subject that is so hard to listen to when you have awakened. I think he means when you Duh. have not awakened. Awakened? Yeah. Awakened. When you have awakened. Yeah. Yeah. Because we talked, like, I think it was Ben Ben Davidson that was talking about awakening. People have woken up. Yeah. I love the show and have been listening for a couple of months. I found you guys on YouTube looking for more stuff on Randall Carlson. I love the last interview with Randall Carlson. I look forward to more interviews with him. Thank you for bringing on great guests. And I have a suggestion for a guest. Dr. Paul Moeller of Moeller International, who is trying to build a flying car. He seems like a great guest, and I think your audience would be into what he's trying to do. I'm not sure how you can get a hold of him, but here is their website, Moeller.com, if you're interested. I've been following the story for years, and they can't seem to get any momentum on the Sky Car. Thanks for the hours of great podcasts. Keep it up. What's the Sky Car run on? Just gas. It's, you gas. know what? I've, I've, I was right into Moeller. Like, honestly, it was 14 years, 15 years ago, maybe. In Jesus. the late, it was either the late 90s or the early 2000s where this guy, Moeller, came up with a Sky Car. And he had a video of his fucking Sky Car flying. And I was like, this is fuck. This is going to change everything. We got Sky Cars now. Finally, right? All it had is, it, it was a bunch I might of, remember that. Actually. It was a bunch of rotary engines. So with big fans, right? So it was nothing fancy for propulsion. But they tilted enough to like, and it was a cool, they designed it pretty cool looking, right? So it was like a sleek looking car with four or six. And I think they had a double passenger and a single passenger with four or six, I think like rotary, rotary engines with fans or something. And just pull you up. And I was so pumped up. I was thinking about, we're going to have to build these little airports for these cars. They can fucking drop in and refuel like little, like mini gas station kind of things. And they're going to be able to like go up and fly over the city at a certain altitude. And I was like super pumped. And then nothing happened. I think I remember like it never got off the ground. I think I remember my high school science teacher talking about them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think since then there's, there's flying cars that are, that have made quite a bit more headway. But uh, yeah, I mean, definitely we should, maybe we should we look it up. Uh, no, yeah, we, I'd love to. I think it's just but the flying FAA cars are, and how and this fucking, stuff. Yeah. Just, People can't drive in Calgary. Do you imagine if these fuckers were flying around? If there was like lanes up and down? Yeah. Or look up or look down before you fucking crush someone? Yeah. See, it has to get to the point where it's fully automated and cars are like actually automated. Automated? Automated. Automated. And you know what I mean? So they're yeah. like going up to the certain level and they can sense all the other cars around and then fly down. And it has to be like full on Jetsons for that to happen, I think. Pretty much. But hey, the technologies are just a matter of, yeah. Totally. Implementing it properly. Yeah. So anyways, thanks for the email, Kurt. Love it. Yeah. Track them down. Yeah. I don't want to. Molar, like the tooth? Uh, no, M-O-L-L-E-R, I think. Yeah, that's not like the tooth. That's molar. Yeah, molar. Yeah, it's probably spelled or pronounced molar. Say molar. It seems a weird thing to say. Is that it? Uh, well, uh, what do you got? I got nothing. Really? Do I ever have anything? Well, I got I got a synch another synchronicity. It's gonna be tough to read, but I got one. 
I thought you had a lucid dream to read. I'm a rambling gram with synchronicities all over the web. I love this. All right. And Aaron uh, is skeptical about everyone and don't believe it yet. Okay. This is going to be a tough one to read. It's a little, uh, it's a little, oof, it's a weird one. Um, I don't know if it's quite, well, yeah, I guess it would be a synchronicity. So this is from Matthew Smith. Thanks, Matthew. Hey, Graham, like the show. Discovered it last year when reading up on one of my favorite subjects, Coral Castle. So I hope we get some feedback from this guy because I told him this next Coral Castle episode is just coming out. This happened, this came through before. I don't even think he knew that we were interviewing. Nobody really knew Scott Russell was yeah, coming Scott Russell until was the week out. before. I know. I feel bad for Scott. We didn't have a lot of But whatever. He's still got the up. same amount of downloads. So he says, otherwise, I don't know when I would have discovered you guys, but I love it and keep it on. Keep on keeping it unreal. As for synchronicities, I, like most, have had many, though some just disappear into memory as they are often subtle and while well, life goes on, eh? But he says he's... Uh, He's in steelwork engineering now, and some years ago he was in care work, mainly with physically handicapped folks. So he recalls a story being told to him by a fellow care assistant. Um, Let's see here. But due to how long ago losing contact memory is hazy. Anyways, so let's see here. Heidi had been going between the UK and Australia quite a bit. So I think she had the option to live in either UK or Australia. She kept going back and forth, dual passport or whatever. Anyways, uh, partly, uh, so this guy, he noticed that she had, uh, like she was pretty hot, right? And she had severe uh, burns on her arms and legs and a bit of the neck. So it wasn't like hideous, but she was still very attractive. So one day he tactfully asked her, and, you know, obviously he didn't want to upset her or appear nosy. He says he's not nosy. What uh, what happened? And she was in Australia, but just traveling the country, like long, long highway road traveling. So, but Australia is big, right? Lots of roads. Yeah. I was traveling over there, and she was vis- revisiting Oz. No, it was a traveling trip over there then. She was revisiting Australia. She was in a car accident of some kind. Details, I forget. I think the car flipped and rolled, uh, but she and a friend escaped somewhat a bit scathed, hence the skin injuries, but both alive though. What was sad and real spooky. And I never mentioned this or talked about it. This again, she found out later and that was, it was on the very same stretch of road. Her father had died on an identical accident. It was so very sad to hear. And I almost wish I'd never asked. And isn't it perhaps a synchronicity that can be seen in a happy, positive way. Oh, and isn't perhaps a synchronicity. Anyways, and he appreciates that, but he thought he'd sh- he'd share it with me. So he says, "Tell Darren to keep up the fucking swearing." I think he'd give me a nine or ten. Keep up the good work. <laughs> a nine or a ten? Yeah, no, he's he's probably just kidding. Huh? Yeah. Kind of a gloomy one. Yeah, I know, gloomy. Eh? But gloomy shouldn't affect the rating. No, well, it kind of does. Puts me in a gloomy mood now. It's pretty crazy, though, having a the same accident as your father who was killed on a lonely stretch on the of same like, Australian when she doesn't even like travel there all the time. Yeah, maybe he was protecting her in some way. I don't suppose. Fuck yeah, right? I hope he wasn't stuck in that spot waiting. 
maybe he was stuck there till then and then he could leave. And then that was the fuck yeah. If that's a case, I'll give it a seven point five. All right. And what if he wasn't stuck there? It was just we won't go into this. We won't go there. <laughs> right on. Uh no, I think that's about all I got. I've got a I've got uh um, what the lucid dream. Yeah, you wanna you wanna hear that yeah, one? Spit it out. It's it's hard to read. You wanna do it next episode? You can maybe fucking print it out or something. It's going to take you a bit to get through it. I think we're almost at a half an hour. Yeah, I should print it out, yeah. Okay, we'll do that next week then. All right. On the last unnumbered episode. Okay, yeah, that's right. Episode 90. Oh, that'll be episode 100. Yeah. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, uh, enjoy the chat with Jim Matheson. Yeah, support the show. And, uh, yeah, we look forward to hearing from you again. Did I say, what did I say? David Matheson? Did, Did I you say, say Jim Matheson? I might have said Jim Matheson. <laughs> <laughs> That's David Matheson. He was thinking Jim Morrison. Were you thinking the doors at the time? I don't know what I was thinking. I might have been thinking Jim Fuller. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, thanks, Jim. Yeah. All right, buddy. So that's about it, eh? Yeah, enjoy the chat with Dave Matheson. This is a fun one. We get into all sorts of oh, astrology that's, stuff and astrology? fun. The undying stars. Yeah, I guess that's it. Yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff in there. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, do you know what it is? It's, for me, it's that stuff that's so paradigm changing, it's hard for me to wrap my head around it. Like, if all those ancient texts were based on like allegories and metaphors instead of like people, pretty crazy shit. Yeah, it is. But he does a pretty good job of laying it out there. Yeah, he does. Awesome. That was a fun chat. Yeah. yeah, he's a great guy. So I think you guys will enjoy that, and uh, we'll pick you up in the outro. You can listen to Graham Ramble a little more. Okay, guys, uh, in Grime America tonight, we're chatting with Mr. David Matheson. Um, it should be a good one. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be fascinating. We've uh, we've listened to David on a couple other shows before, and we've been trying to uh, to have David on. We got to we got to talk about the genesis story of our communication before we get too far in. But uh, some of you guys would have heard of David Matheson. Um, he's he was he kind of journeyed from being a literalist as far as like the Bible and ancient scriptures goes to, to looking at um, <clears throat> the stars in a different way. And his, his latest book is called the undying stars. And it's the truth that unites the world's ancient wisdom and the conspiracy to keep it from you. And he's also, it's pretty cool. It teaches us how there's another vision of reality, which is simultaneously holographic and shamanic. And we're going to talk about that. And David's first book out was called The Matheson Corollary. And he obviously loves to write because he's got a shitload of blogs going on here. So there's 
there's a, a ton of stuff to talk to him about, and it's going to be some stuff that I have a hard time wrapping my head around. So I think he's going to have to to dumb it down, slow it down for us. But let's You're uh, have to dumb it down to ground again, level again to ground level. Yeah. <laughs> no, I've got some questions about about how this how this constellation. Uh, stuff started way back in the past so anyways enough enough rambling graham here and welcome to uh grammarica david thanks a lot graham and darren really excited to be here thanks for having me over to the igloo yeah <laughs> it's great to have you so i remember i uh, getting an email uh i think we we got an email from you i can't remember if you contacted us first or we we to you i think i think you uh emailed me and i tried to forward that email and I tried to forward it to Darren and I tried to reply and like nothing was working. But it was at the time when I think I was having computer issues at the time too. So I kind of assumed it was me. You're and always then, having computer issues because yeah. <laughs> you have a PC. Yeah, right. But mine wasn't working either or my phone and my phone's usually pretty reliable. So you were trying to reply at the same time, right? Yeah, but I've heard that are – but the yeah, because the weird thing was because I've had Grimerica bounce back before because I don't know what it is. I guess we look sketchy. But even my PremSteel one, which is Gmail-based, didn't work. So yeah. that, that, that's what was weird. But then the virus got through. Yeah, so that's funny. So I, I couldn't even forward your email, David. It was the weirdest thing. I tried to forward it to my other email, and I couldn't even do that. So something really weird was going on. And then, of course, Darren had this virus. <laughs> he opened up, and that's what got through to you. So how funny <laughs> is that? <laughs> yeah, so I finally – yeah, I, I just figured you guys were blowing me off. I was like, man, these guys in Canada are mean. Yeah, meanwhile, Darren's like, didn't you respond to him? I'm like, yeah, I, I – I sent him like two emails right off the bat, and oh, but I they weren't bouncing back though. Yeah, it was a long time ago. I wrote you guys an email because you had mentioned the uh, total solar eclipse and whether you were going to drive thirty minutes to see it or something. Oh, yeah, yeah right. Two thousand seventeen. I wrote you an email and said, "Hey, um, I really think you should make the effort to do that." And, yeah, that's right. Because right, I said it was once in a lifetime. I think it's like eight eight hours or six hours is the drive. But yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm going to take my kids there. and We're going to camp out. Yeah, and Graham's sure. like, that fuck was like that months man. ago. That was months ago. And then I never heard anything. I'm like, well, I, oh, I guess I must have like said the wrong thing or something. And then I get this virus. That's <laughs> <laughs> the only thing that makes it through. That's how good the fucking the cyber terrorists are becoming. <laughs> well, you know, so I figured it was just some spam from Graham. Yeah. It was like a virus. So I wrote you back. But anyway, I'm glad to be here. It's, uh, you know, it's really cool to meet you guys and uh, talk to all the Moai. I, I, I guess it's probably nighttime where all the Moai are. So hopefully you still have a few of the giant heads listening to you with their headphones. Yeah, yeah. There's always a few. Yeah, <laughs> we've, we've found others around the, the globe too in artwork lately. So there was a bit of a synchronicity around that. Okay, yeah. I want to, I wanna, you know, try and talk slower for the Moai because I've, <laughs> I saw him in the in that movie Night at the Museum. They talk in this really oh. deep voice. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they talk really slow. Is that the new one or the old one? Uh, I was thinking of the really old one. Okay, I gotta watch that again. I totally forgot about that. That's yeah, true. The original yeah, that was one. pretty funny. Yeah. My dumb dumb want to speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, so let's let's get into your your stuff then, David. What's going on? What's new? Like you're, you've got your Undying Stars out, so obviously we'll get into that. But is there anything uh, new that you can tease us with? Sure. Well, I am. Uh, so I am working on an, uh, a book that's just about star myths, and um, 
Okay. You know, since the since the book came out, obviously I've been blogging about it and even finding more and more things that are related to the celestial allegory system that we can talk about, including like even the Arabian Nights and Russian fairy tales and just uh, uh, amazing places that, um, you know, and some people who might be hearing this for the first time might be saying, yeah, well, to someone who only has a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? You've, you know, you've got this theory, so maybe you're forcing it onto all these things. But actually, um, there's so many little details that are included in the texts or that are put in there that are very distinctive to the constellations. So we'll talk about that. But anyway, um, I want to make something that's more like a coffee table book with big glossy pictures of the constellations and the kind of the myth on the left side. Oh, nice. And, and then a picture on the right. And, and I don't know if this, you know, I hate to say too much because maybe you know maybe someone will come out with a book before me or something but the idea is to have it be kind of like a a puzzle that is a great idea so the first half is okay here's the myth and here's a picture like of the myth you okay. know a picture yeah. of a picture of you know constellation maybe or... yeah no 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 constellations in the first half just oh. on the left side you know this is the story about how odin the norse you know here's a section on norse myths here's a section on myths from africa here's a section on myths from australia so here's a picture of odin stealing the mead of poetry which is a pretty famous episode from the norse myths and the picture is odin and he turns into an eagle you know there's lots of paintings about this and then at the bottom it says you know here's a few clues from the story that might help you and then turn if you want to you know see my interpretation of it turn to page 207 and then you go to the back of the book and there's the same thing with the constellations and here's how it connects oh i like that all right so i just gave it away man that's okay that's i can <laughs> that's already <laughs> i can already visualize it better though because it's sometimes it's hard just listening and in and, and, and an audio format to visualize the connection between the written myth and the visual pictures of the myth and the, and the constellation so i think that's a great idea so that's what I'm working on. Thanks. Um, I hope it. I hope it'll be something that um, you know people will enjoy. And um, and and I've got also actually lots of other ideas too. Just delving into one specific set of myths. And I mean, you could really write a whole book, an entire book on the Norse myths or the Odyssey. I love the Odyssey. I had a chance to actually teach the Odyssey at the college level. The Odyssey of Homer, wow. one, of my, one of my favorites, and it's filled with star myths. You could write, you know, a, a, a five-volume series on on that, or the Bible, or whatever. So hmm. um, it's there's just endless, um, endless. It's like which way do you want to go first? Yeah, well, you know what? Okay, so here's what I want to do first is is keep it at a high level because that's kind of where some of my questions come in. So obviously you're correlating all these ancient myths and even myths of people and 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 gods and legends to to uh constellations and the stars and stuff like that, right? So so if we go back to the beginning of or of what we know, like I try to wrap my head around how do all these ancient peoples same uh, definition of the constellations or, you know, like the Zodiac symbols and all that. Right. So it seems like there's this common, you talk about all these myths from all these cultures and they're correlated to the same 
kind of like, you know, Virgo or cancer or whatever you want to talk about. How, how is that possible? Like how, I mean, I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't act astounded because I would. No, you should some, act astounded. That I would have some crazy theories like, so you guys like collective are, unconsciousness or all kinds of <clears throat> spiritual mysteries that could be responsible for that. But what, what do you think about that? Yeah. So I think you guys ask great incisive questions and that is you've gone right to, I think, one of the most important questions, because if what I'm saying is correct, then it is, um, you know, it's the biggest, I mean, it's like one of the biggest things in history. So what I would say, like staying at a really high level, I believe that something very, um, like a gigantic deception has been pulled on humanity nice. that we, that we have been, um, tricked into believing that all these things, A, are meant to be taken literally and B, were once taken literally and, um, and that, that's the, and that, that's the way they're supposed to be interpreted. And actually I believe that they're meant to be taken allegorically in order to teach us something, hmm. um, which is really powerful. Just like um, I've used the metaphor of in the Karate Kid, wax on, wax off. Yeah. It's like the stories are like the motion of waxing the car or painting the fence, but the waxing the car and painting the fence don't really matter except for what they're teaching. They're teaching something really powerful, like here's how you defeat Johnny and keep him from hitting you in the side of the head with his shin bone, you know, at a hundred miles an hour and knocking you to the ground. And so that the, the power is in the hidden message. But if you just stay with the wax on wax off motion, you're never going to get it. You, you can be the best car waxer and never realize that, you know, karate. (laughs) And so by robbing us of the karate part, We've been kept at the wax on, wax off level, and Johnny and his buddies are beating up everybody. Okay. Okay, okay let's stick with that for a while then. So, so is this a conscious deception uh, from, from one or two groups from the beginning, or is this a, a deception that kind of has naturally happened uh, by all the different power groups as, as we've grown up in culture kind of? Yeah. Don't know um, how far back it goes. I can... Tr- tell you that I am sure it goes back to the first four centuries AD where there's a group and that group may still be, uh, may still be, and we, and we can, let's, I would say, let's like put that in the fridge and pull it out in a little bit. We'll come back to that question because your first question I also want to deal with before I drift too far away from that. You, you, you speared it with that first question of how, okay, all the way around the world. And I'll use another movie metaphor. <laughs> this one came to me um, since writing the book. So this is after publishing the book. But if you've ever seen the first Planet of the Apes, 1968 Planet of the Apes, with who's the, uh, who's the protagonist, who's the star? Oh, geez. What's his name again? <laughs> get your... Oh, get come your on, Darren. Oh, Darren's too young. Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> yeah. No, no. The first Planet of the Apes came out like in Charlton Heston or something like that. There you go. It's oh, Heston. So Charlton Heston is this kind of hard-bitten, tough guy. Like in the opening scenes, he's smoking a cigar um, in his 
you know, spacecraft before he, you know, takes the long nap. And then he wakes up on this planet in the big, you know, spoiler for Darren obviously hasn't seen the 1968 <laughs> version. So, you know, I, this is like an old enough movie where I don't feel like I have to give a spoiler alert. But it turns out he's on the planet Earth. But he doesn't figure that out until the end when he finally yeah, sees. Yeah. Oh, no, when does he finally see? Yeah. It was Earth all along. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> so he finally sees the, the, the Statue of Liberty. And that's what finally, the Statue of Liberty is like tilt, tilted over with moss growing on it. And the waves are kind of lapping along the beach. And he goes, oh, no, I'm on Earth. Right? But all through the movie, he's been talking to apes who wear clothes, <laughs> speak. Yeah. He writes stuff in the sand because his his throat has been wounded, so he can't talk for half the movie. He writes stuff in letters, and they understand it, and they say, oh, wow, how'd this guy learn to write? (laughs) Okay, so he doesn't figure out that he's on Earth. I mean, so what I'm I'm making an analogy and saying, if you land on a planet where all – you know, you think you've been asleep for 2,000 years, or you have been asleep for 2,000 years – but all the inhabitants speak English, don't need to wear space helmets, and can read stuff that you scratch in the sand. You might suspect, wait a minute, um, something happened in the past uh, you know, that's different. There, there's some mystery here, and maybe I'm on Earth. So now back to your question, Graham said, wait a minute, if all the myths around the world, the Bible, ancient Egypt ancient Greece, Australia, Africa, Polynesian Islands, Hawaii, um, New South Zealand, America. North America, South America, Japan, um, <clears throat> Norway, if they all have this common language, it's as if we landed on a planet where everybody is speaking one language and you have to say something in this, the past is different than what I'm assuming and what I've been taught. We, we have not been taught that there was some kind of worldwide origin um, for the myths or that they, there was some, there's either some kind of contact between everybody or there was maybe some common ancestor civilization that was lost that was even before the Egyptians um, that they all are preserving in their own way or they all just came up with it. On, I mean, if we're Sherlock Holmes, we have to – or Scooby-Doo and the gang, we have to think of every single possible – explanation. Okay, well, maybe um, they all came up with it on their own. Maybe it's the collective unconscious. Maybe, you know, there's all kinds of ways we can explain it. But the, the, the fact of it is, is incredibly important and, and it deserves to be <laughs> examined. And, it's, and it tells us that there's something about our ancient history um, that is really, that, you know, that is really different, I think, than the conventional view. Yeah, I think other things like um, the flood myth and things like that kind of do a little bit of the same, right? When they, uh, when you find them across so many cultures and it's so widespread that it's kind of hard to deny that it's the same thing. Where is it a common ancestor, or is it a global event? Or that's right. So, and not only that, but it's not just a flood myth, but there's all kinds of little details within the flood myth which tend to match up, such as. Well, there were eight people on the boat. You know, in the Bible, Old Testament account, it's Noah and his wife, that's two, plus three sons and their wives, that's six more, so that's eight. Huh. And then, you know, in China, they, I think, um, 
they have a symbol for a flood or something, and it's like eight people in a boat, like <laughs> the, the, the pictogram. So um, all around the world, there are lots of common details. In fact, there's a flood myth in um, the ancient Greeks flood myth, which has a lot of similarities to where the survivor of the flood uh, is the first one to make wine, and then he gets drunk, which in the Old Testament you have Noah is, we're told after the flood, he cultivates the vine, and then he gets drunk, and then his um, sons find him passed out and naked, and one of the sons points to him and, you know, makes fun of him. And the other two sons are like, hey, let's respect our father here and let's walk backwards with a sheet so that we don't see him. We'll put the sheet between us and we'll walk backwards and we'll cover up his nakedness. And so when he wakes up, he kind of blesses the two sons who did that and he curses the other son who was making fun of him while he was passed out drunk naked. Hmm. Um, And so what's going on here, and actually that's kind of a good segue if you want to segue into um, what I think now we've already been talking for a little while and we haven't actually talked any specifics but this is a myth this this Old Testament account can be shown to relate directly to some constellations there's a constellation of a man with a jug pouring out some water and it's an important constellation because it's in the zodiac, and we can define what the zodiac is if you want. But you might already be thinking of, hmm, you know, even, even if you're not super into the stars, you might be able to guess which constellation in the zodiac carries around a jug and is pouring stuff out of a pitcher. Any dancing? Taurus? Cancer is a crab. <laughs> Taurus is a bull. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the water jug guy. guy what's that one water jug guy that's that's Scorpio. the guy yeah <laughs> aquarius oh the age aquarius. of aquarius yeah Why the age of aquarius that's right <laughs> so anyway he's pitched forward with this um jug um but he actually has um he has some celestial features which actually make him look like he might be naked, okay? But he's pitched forward with a jug, so that could be a jug of wine. So this may have to do with the fact that, first of all, there's a flood myth. It's associated with a guy named Aquarius or a constellation that has to do with the water. But he's also, the pouring out of the water could also be pouring out of wine. So that's why he's the first one to make wine. He's passed out naked. And then ahead of him, See, we're in the age of Pisces right now, but transitioning into the age of Aquarius. So mm-hmm. ahead of Aquarius is Pisces. And Pisces are these two fish on a band, like in a V-shape, like two fish tied together by their tails. But in between them is this big square, very distinctive square. You can even still see it tonight. Um, it's sinking down towards the west now, but you can even see it um, early hours after dark. It's this giant square. It's the great square of Pegasus. So there's this great square in between two fish right ahead of a figure who's passed out drunk because he drank too much wine. That's the two brothers who are walking backwards with the sheet to cover their father's nakedness. And then behind them, there's a goat that's Capricorn. That's the scapegoat. That's the one who gets blamed. That's the third son. So the, the three sons of Noah, or at least that's one possibility of an explanation. So, um, and, huh. and I can show you more and more details. In fact, there's a blog post about it um, 
where I, where I actually talk to that specific myth. But if Noah and Noah's Ark are actually celestial occurrences, this could explain why they're found all the way around the world with a lot of the similar details, such as the, you know, the wine um, and the number of the sons and things like that. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So I want to I shift away from that because that's one of many examples you could talk about. Uh, and that'll be like on page, what, like 68 of your coffee table book? <laughs> that'll be the one of the, the puzzle pieces. Yeah, so, well, that one's actually in the that one's in the current book too. I talk about it. It's on the blog, but I, yeah, I no, that's good. Would probably include it in the coffee table book. But go ahead. Where, where well, so back to the kind of the I just wanted to keep keep on that for a little bit more is the the big picture about all these ancient myths. Like, do you think that it has anything to do with uh, psychedelics or anything like that? Like, when I I know that you know in my past when I've tried like mushrooms or something like that, and and I've been. Uh, needing a place to <laughs> to get my wits together, it's usually looking up at the stars, right, or the clouds, or something like that. So I still find it hard to imagine how all these myths uh, talk about the same thing. Like if you look up at the the star of uh, like Orion's Belt or something, right? How does everybody see the same thing in Orion's Belt? That's a good question. And like, there are there are other. Um, constellations that are, I mean, in Chinese culture, there are constellations that group the stars differently. In the, some of the Native American cultures, they have different constellations. Okay, and good. Yeah. Yet, and yet, you still have some of these same myths that have in the myths some of the details that you can look at the, uh, a, a myth and say, wait a minute, you know, this is a myth from actually um, people on the island that is today in British Columbia, um, Vancouver Island, the native, the First Nations people there, where there's a, a myth about a, a young woman and she has a bow and she has this old grandfather and, um, she, and her grandfather says, hey, let's get fire, shoot the bow into the center of a whirlpool. There's all these details and I can look at that myth and actually, I'm not the one who, you know, first came up with this. I read about this myth in a book called Hamlet's Mill. We could talk about how important that book is right. later on. It was published in 1969. But anyway, they talk about that myth. Unfortunately, they don't give you enough details always to figure it out. So I kind of had to scratch my head and think about it. And I've written about that myth. But that's a Native American First Nations people myth that very clearly relates to distinctive features of the constellation Virgo, the constellation Boötes, the herdsman, the getting of fire, which is almost always found alongside Virgo because she is in a very distinctive place in the equinox. in the equinox position in the Zodiac band. So it's like this system is in operation around the world, even if they have also some different ways of looking at the constellations, they have myths that show they're tied into this system somehow. Huh, that's interesting. So we could get into those. I don't want to get into the weeds. Like, you know, you're trying to pull us back up out of the coffee table book to, okay, what does it mean? And does this have anything to do with psychedelics? It's like, Graham, you're throwing like spears here that are skewering right to the, <laughs> this is, these are great questions. The first question was. Graham's like the I, Walter Cronkite. Yeah. No, because, <laughs> because the big picture, I believe that the big picture is what these things are all telling us. 
we're not supposed to take them literally. See, the story of the sons of Noah, the three sons are called Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And there you can, you can go on the internet and read about all the very racist theories that have to do with, oh, well, these people are descended from Ham and Ham was cursed by Noah and therefore these people were cursed or like the curse that was put on Cain. And people through the ages have used these myths literally to divide up humanity and say, oh, we're descended from the good brothers and you're descended from the bad brother or whatever. So um, I believe that the literal misinterpretation... um, and, and I just want to say really quickly, there's some people who get tremendous value out of the literal belief in Jesus and the 12 disciples. And, I, and, and, if, and, and those people who are listening and don't want to hear, you know, I, you know, I respect if you want to keep your um, belief system, I'm not trying to stamp on anyone's belief system, but it is a historical fact that literalism has led to divisions among humanity and also, I believe, divisions of humanity from nature. What these things are actually telling us is we're connected to the universe. What's up there in the stars, we're making stories about it as if it happened down here because it's an as above, so below. And, and what they're trying to teach us with the, the whole system, I believe, um, and I'm not the first one to, to say all this, but I, um, you know, I have tied this, I've spent a lot of time as you alluded to, I used to take this literally. I've spent a lot of time after I started to see, well, it's not, it cannot be literal. I've seen enough examples to, to, to in my opinion, it cannot be literal. Mm-hmm. So now I've had to wrestle. After that, I had to wrestle with, well, okay, what does it mean? Is this all just a bunch of um, uh, primitive stories about the stars? No, it's actually telling us something about the nature of reality and in the nature of human existence that has to do with kind of a dual nature of reality. There's a physical world and there's a non-ordinary reality world, a spirit world, an invisible world. Where do people go when they're on psychedelics or where, you know, in the DMT, you know, I've heard you guys interview Rick Strassman and in his, um, in his experiments, people would get upset if he treated it as if it was just a hallucination, because say, just a minute, this was real. This is as real. It's reality, but it's non-ordinary reality. So what these myths, the big picture is when you say, does this have anything to do with psychedelics? It has to do with we, um, whether you accept the conclusion or not, I believe what they were telling us their opinion, the people who gave us these myths that are found around the world, whoever put this system together, are saying the universe as you know it is composed of ordinary reality and non-ordinary reality. And non-ordinary reality is where people go when they're on a shamanic journey or on a near-death experience or maybe on, you know, on other, there's there's all kinds of, or lucid dreaming. Yeah, in altered states, yeah. Altered states. So that's what they're telling us, I believe, you know, I mean, I like listening to your guys' interviews and sometimes you'll be interviewing someone and you'll say, well, what's your wild speculation as to what all this could mean or where these visions are coming from? Yeah. And, and these people who have a lot of experience studying this, their speculations are very worthwhile. So I'm glad you asked that question. Right. But also, <laughs> amazingly enough, we have the ancient scriptures of mankind, of the human race, not, not just men, but, you know, men and women, the ancient scriptures of humanity 
actually give us an answer, whether we accept that answer or not. But I believe somebody went to a lot of trouble to, to encode um, an explanation of where people go when they're lucid dreaming or on a shamanic journey or on some other form of, you know, there, there are shamanic cultures that use mushrooms to get there. There are shamanic cultures that didn't use mushrooms at all because maybe mushrooms didn't grow there. And they mm-hmm. could get there using drums. They could get there using breathing patterns. <laughs> you can get there using meditation. You can get there using a rattle. Yeah. Uh, rattling for 15 minutes can put, you know, if you know what you're doing, can put you into an altered state. Hey, sex can get you there too. Well, so non-ordinary reality. So, so we, we live in a... And we live in a universe that has ordinary reality and non-ordinary reality. And the ancients, up until a certain point, knew that. In fact, you know, the Eleusinian mysteries of Eleusis, um, people like Terence McKenna have written about this and, and speculated about what did they use in these mysteries that went on for at least eight centuries, maybe even longer, until they were finally shut down by the Roman emperor in AD 390. So AD 390 was when the Eleusinian mysteries were shut down hmm. or maybe 392. Um, and, and the temple at Delphi where, you know, supposedly there was, you know, there was a priestess the, um, that would go into a trance condition and bring back a message from the gods or, you know, that wasn't shut down until AD 390 or 392 as well. So, all the way up until that period of time, you had, and, and the Eleusinian mysteries, anyone could go participate in that. You, you didn't have to, you could be Greek or you could be non-Greek. It, it took place in Greece. You could be slave, you could be free. You could go participate. You could be um, male, female. You could go participate in those mysteries. So they were open to everybody. And um, what happened in them is, is such a secret that, you know, we don't really know. But what has been written down about it pretty clearly says that the participants experienced non-ordinary reality and it changed their life. So, um, and there's also a bunch of celestial metaphor in the Eleusinian mysteries that has to do with the constellation Virgo. Same thing with the priestess at Delphi. She's depicted in ancient um, plates and her, her posture is clearly... Um, related to the constellation Virgo. So I believe that what these star myths are teaching us is they're, they're using a very um, you know, amazing metaphorical system to explain to us there is a spirit realm and there's a physical realm. And the stars, the realm of the stars, is the spirit realm or represents the spirit realm. And the reason why that works so well is the stars, as they go through the sky, just like the sun, they rise in the east out of the ground. Then they cross the sky and then they go down in the west back into the ground. So they're, for a part of the time, they're up in the air where there's no matter. They're flying through the ether. They're free. But then they sink down into the earth, which, you know, they either sink down into earth or if you're watching them go into the ocean, they sink down into water, the lower realm. And that's where we are. The metaphor is that we are stars or we're like stars. We're these, we have a spirit component in us, this invisible component, but we've been plunged down into this material body. So we're a cross between physical and spiritual 
And we're so physical that we tend to forget the spiritual and we forget where we came from. And we even forget that we have this invisible component. We forget how to contact the invisible realm. But if we did, uh, it would change our life. Yeah. Well, imagine how much easier it would have been. I I truly think back then without the technological distractions we have now, it must've been so much easier to connect with your, you know, whatever your spirit guides, your higher self, some altered state of consciousness through natural or, you know, psychedelic means would have been way easier. So I, I think there is a, a collective consciousness reach through outer uh, altered states that happens. I mean, I, we even experience collective consciousness happening now a days in the modern world. So I think it would have been way more powerful back then. And then you get into the technology aspect of it, like, or, or get this for a, a correlation that, that has to do with you too, is I was on a, uh, um, a webinar with Randall Carlson on the weekend, mm-hmm. and he was talking about the cosmic quest for the grail and the symbolism of the Holy Grail. And he was talking about the period of the so after the dark ages and the 1100s when there was a huge spike in in uh, culture and right. the buildings of the uh the the temples or the key th- cathedrals, the cathedrals right? Right. yeah so all that now he was talking about the sacred lines and or the sacred areas that these cathedrals were made and how they were made also in accordance with the constellations and the, yep. and and also over water. Uh, and he was saying, if these are made over water and they're made in accordance with the constellations, then is the water also, is there a correlation between the water and the constellations? So, I mean, it can get pretty, pretty deep. I mean, who knows what we're dealing with here, but it could be, uh, they could have been tapping in all kinds of stuff, you know, with the underground uh, water and, uh, you know, it lining up with constellations. Right. So, yeah, there's an as above, so below. And I know, you know, Randall Carlson Carlson talks a lot about that. Um, And um, there's the waters above that are described in the Old Testament, you know, the Genesis account. There's the Milky Way galaxy, which um, has has been reflected on Earth, like in the Nile River, you know, one of the one of the big, you know, the the theories of Graham, Graham Hancock and Robert Boval was that, hey, uh, the pyramids seem to reflect certain stars. You know, maybe it's the belt of Orion. And if so, is their positioning next to the Nile River? Could that be the Milky Way? Oh. And, you know, today is actually January 6th, which is traditionally in Christian tradition, the day of Epiphany, but actually this... Um, you know, the symbolism of this goes all the way back to ancient Egypt. In Epiphany, you have things like the baptism of Christ in the River Jordan, which, you know, I wrote a blog post actually today about that that shows, I believe this also has to do with the constellation Aquarius and the Milky Way galaxy. So um, there's a, there's a as above, so below element mythologically, but then you're also referring to the fact that technologically, we have around the world amazing constructions that are very ancient that are still unexplained. There are underwater aqueducts in, you know, where the Nazca lines are down in huh. some of the driest parts of Western South America, Nazca in the Atacama Desert and Nazca lines. And there's underground aqueducts that are amazing. And then there's, um, you know, sites like Easter Island or Stonehenge or, 
um, you know, the Giza pyramids or some of the pyramids that are in Central America. And what's amazing is those are all located on the earth, certain specific distances from each other um, in terms of longitude, which is a reference to this, you know, the size of the earth. So in order to place them certain specific numbers apart uh-huh. using longitude, you have to know the size of the earth. Yeah. And, you have to, and, and, and not only that, but some of them are, are along a great circle, which um, a great circle is like on a sphere. A great circle is a circle that you draw around the sphere that's as big as the as a, as a circle that you could draw. Like you could draw a little itty bitty one around the North Pole, but that wouldn't be a great circle. So like the equator is a great circle. Right, right. A great circle has the center of the sphere as its center. So the equator is one of them. But there are other great circles that aren't the equator that are like tilted, but that, that are great circles that connect things like Easter Island and Stonehenge and then two or three other sites. Yeah, that's crazy. And there's people, there's people who have written about that. Well, how did they do that? Who did that? How did they have the knowledge? They must have known that the earth was a sphere. They must have been pretty geometrically sophisticated in order to be able to um, put these ancient sites along a great circle. So how did they access that technology? So some possibilities are, well, maybe ancient aliens taught them. Maybe ancient aliens placed the sites. Maybe ancient aliens um, built the sites. Or maybe they accessed non-ordinary reality ah. through these shamanic techniques that they had and were able to gain – because you can gain knowledge in the non-ordinary reality state that you can't gain in the ordinary reality state. And right. we're so used to – you know, all our technology is based on the scientific method, which is great. and It doesn't need non-ordinary reality. But just because that method's so great doesn't mean we should say, yeah, so – Let's, let's make fun of the non-ordinary reality method. That's not smart because the non-ordinary reality method um, is what the shamans of South America explain when somebody asks them, how did you figure out these amazing med- you know, medicinal combinations sitting here in this gigantic rainforest with millions of things that are poisonous? If you, you know, if you, trial and error doesn't work to explain all the things that they know. And they would say, well, we, the plants told us. Well, what do you mean the plants told us? They, they, they went into a non-ordinary, Jeremy Narby um, writes about this. He's a PhD. And in fact, he's in DMT, the spirit molecule, which I just saw for the first time oh. like last, last week. Oh, so nice. Jeremy, Marg- J- Jeremy Narby is one of the people in there. And he talks about, he went to the shamans and asked them. And, and they said, well, the plants told us. Obviously, they told them in a non-ordinary reality. We don't, when we're in ordinary reality, plants don't normally speak to us. Right. right? right. So, maybe we're but just that not is, <laughs> but maybe we're not listening. Right? <laughs> they're trying. Yeah, they're, they're trying. trying every day. Yeah. Well, so we have to learn how to listen. But what? <laughs> that's a great point, Darren, because I believe that the methods of listening were deliberately stamped out. They were deliberately stamped out by the people who shut down the Eleusinian mysteries, who shut down the the. Uh, temple at Delphi that that then went around stamping out the knowledge that these scriptures are actually based on allegories. And they said, hey, wax on, wax off. That is only about waxing cars. Anyone who teaches that it's about karate, you know, we will put them to death and any books that they've written will burn. So they instituted a system of only literalism 
any anyone who taught you how to talk to plants was stamped out starting in Europe and then moving around the world. At least that's a a theory. I mean, a plausible know, theory, yeah. A, a plausible theory huh. and there's actually some, you know, there's some historical evidence which we could talk about that makes me think that that may be what happened, but yeah. Is that like Alexandria or even before that? Yeah, so... Um, After, I think, right? Yeah, it was in the time of the Roman Empire. Alexandria, of course, was was built Fucking by Alexander. But, but yeah, but, but, but there was a library at Alexandria, which was a famous library of Alexandria that was burned down um, several times. And it may not have been one specific site, but the, the burning of the library at Alexandria in about A.D. 400 is... Oh, that was I, A.D. 400? Yeah, it was about, I think it was A.D. 400. Yeah. Right? I that's, could look on I thought it was Wikipedia longer, or well, something. No, no, it's no, okay. Just, uh, that's right around the time when all this stuff was being shut yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. Huh. It's right around the time when it was all being shut down. Romans and what was happening? Romans are just always fucking shit up, baby. <laughs> <laughs> they like to break things. It's never like the Romans. Well, I guess they did do some good shit. But oh, they had some amazing yeah, yeah, technology yeah. going on and stuff. But they probably just stole it. They're what? <laughs> or whoever they conquered. Well, if you want to get if you want to get into the Romans, so what I believe happened was the Romans had a the Romans had a civilization that was uh, very you know had its just like everyone else they had their strengths and weaknesses and one of their strengths was they were very disciplined disciplined fighters they they were virtuous um, in a lot of ways in terms of like not wanting riches and things like that but then later obviously they changed um, but they were they were really successful in um, beating other armies. But not only that, they were very successful in, once they beat some other culture, they basically said, all right, listen, we're going to let you guys run your own culture. Um, You know, you just have to sign these certain deals with us so that we, you know, now you're part of us. But, you know, it's like a, it's kind of like a company that buys another company and says, listen, you, you had a good thing going in that company. We're not even going to change the name. We're not going to, but you're going to be part of our company, but you're going to still run it your way. Kind of like you, Instagram you, or whatever. You mean it's like the project paperclip after world war two, yeah. us bringing the Nazis over. <laughs> you're jumping way ahead in time, but so I'm, all right, I'm, I'm taking too long to explain what I believe happened was this Roman system, you know, then it, it veered into an empire and not long after that, they actually conquered a people that um, took them over from the inside and emplaced a system of literalist belief huh. and, and threw away everything that was there before and stamped it out and emplaced a literalist system that's, that we know today as literalist Christianity. And, so, and then not long after literalist Christianity got control of the empire – they broke it in half, Western Empire and Eastern Empire, and basically everything that was the Western Empire became what, you know, today we refer to the West. Yeah. You know, there's the West. Well, everywhere you find the West, that's not where you would go to find shamanism. That's not where you would go to find, you know, the techniques of deep meditation and crossing over into the non-ordinary reality. Um, basically what this, what, what, Western Roman Empire and then its descendants in Western Europe did was they went around stamping out the shamanic types of, you know, this idea of there being an 
a non-ordinary reality, let's just call that generally speaking shamanic. I know that's a general, we could, some people might argue and say, wait, no, there's a technical definition of shamanism. Okay. But generally the shamanic worldview, it was present in Europe. It was present in Norway, in northern, you know, way northern Europe. And, and everywhere that the Western Roman Empire was, they stamped it out within Europe, except a few places that they didn't get to, like way north where the Lapland, the Sami people, um, you know, with the reindeers, they, they used to call them the Laps. The, but the mm. Sami people, they have shamans, and those shamans survived all the way up until like the 1500s and 1600s because nobody got that far north but they basically stamped it out in england they stamped it out in france they stamped it out in um you know the ireland and then they said okay we've stamped it out here now let's go across the ocean and start stamping out the shamanic cultures there and when they arrived in mexico you know the conquistadors they went to town stamping out all the ancient knowledge there so that's what i think happened hmm. Well, and it, and it, it could—it almost kept coming in a way. If you want to talk about what happened in America with the native, you know, the native folk too. Absolutely, absolutely. And is is our mushrooms legal folk. in America? The, the First Nations, the the Native Americans were were brutally. I mean, you know, so this stuff that I'm talking about isn't just gee whiz. This what I'm saying is there's been a gigantic um, switch pulled on humanity. In terms of, you know, your old ancient wisdom has been traded in for something else that divides people from nature, divides people and says, oh, you know, those people don't matter as much as these people. We got to fix their culture with our culture. And that, um, that started in the Western Roman Empire and it spread from there around the world. And, and, it's, and it's destroyed. Yes. Yeah, and it's, it's bad. And then all money, money and all that shit comes along with it, right? The root of all evil. <laughs> <laughs> so how did it, how did it continue? How did it have so much momentum though? Did they, was it just one of those things that uh, you, you kind of get it, get the ball rolling and it kind of snowballs from there or did it, was it really consciously, consciously manipulated all along every generation along the way? Like, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so this is, you know, so now I've laid out some things and people, I think everybody needs to go look at the evidence for themselves and be, you know, everyone's got to be Sherlock Holmes on this. So um, there's all these different possibilities, but here's what I believe, you know, here's the thesis. If I was Sherlock Holmes or Scooby-Doo and Shaggy, I would say, well, you know, okay, a crime has been committed. Here's what I think happened. What they're telling you in school in terms of history is not exactly what it was. It was something slightly different. So how did, you know, so some people might say, well, this is way too far-fetched. You know, are you telling me that, um, you know, some people who took over the Roman empire all the way back in AD 100 through AD, basically 500, um, or, you know, 400, Mm -hmm. those people who consolidated power in AD 100 through 400 continued on and maybe are even still in power today? Maybe, especially if accessing non-ordinary reality really is, really is powerful, right? It's like this. If I knew a Kung Fu system that everybody used to know, then I stamped out everyone who knew it and I just kept it me and my sons 
and my cousins. I'll teach it to, I'll teach it to my family and we'll know it. Then, then we're going to go around to all these different bars and we're going to pick on the locals. And they're, they may be really big and they'd be like, hey, pipsqueak, I'm going to crush you now. And then I use this one dirty move or this one kung fu move because I'm really good at it. And they don't know it. And I'm, and I'm like, dang, this kung fu really works. And I can just go from bar to bar using that same move. And they never figure it out because they don't know wax on, wax off. Because I've, stamp, I've stamped out everyone who knows wax on, wax off. And so it may be, I mean, I, mean, I think for something to last this long, if it really has, you have to pause it as a possible explanation some non-ordinary help, whether that's, you know, David Icke um, talks about, well, you know, there's reptilians that are helping or what, there, there may be some uh, bad entities in the spirit world that are helping out the bad guys. I don't know. Or maybe it's just the bad guys are able to, they're using the cult or whatever. Dark, yeah. They're yeah. using the dark side of the force. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they've because they can the stay Jedi. connected because they've, they've kept that, uh, knowledge of connection throughout they've the ages it, where I mean, they've, they've hidden throughout the ages. Yeah. And mm. you see it and you see it, you know, I mean, I just listened to your, um, you know, talking about the movies with, um, Oh yeah. Yeah. With Robert Sullivan, Robert Sullivan, yeah. uh, you know, these patterns, these mythical symbols have been kept alive for ages and they've been preserved. And, um, I don't think it's just for fun. I don't think it's just for um, gee whiz. I think it may be because it relates to something um, in the spirit world as well. So, or it relates to certain techniques of crossing that barrier, whether crossing to the other side or understanding, um, you know, how to access non-ordinary knowledge. You, you may be able to gain knowledge on the other side that you can bring back. You may be able to change things on the other side that then have, because I believe the two realms, or at least the, um, the myths, the system of myths seem to teach that the two realms are connected. They're, they're intimately connected. And in fact, this world, the material world, is projected by that world. You hear like, shaman, you know, shamans teach and say, you know, this world isn't really the real world. That one that you can't see, that's the real world. It's projecting this one. And the funny thing mm-hmm. is, you know, before... You know, some, some, most listeners to your show probably would, would not reject that out of hand, but some people, you know, and university professors might say, oh, that's ridiculous, except for the fact that quantum physics and, and, you know, these theoretical physicists have for about a hundred years been proposing models of the universe that are very similar to that. Right. They talk, they talk about, well, there seems to be a realm of potentiality that molecules or subatomic particles kind of exist in this realm of potentiality. And then they jump into um, one position. Yeah, it's like a holographic universe. So I call it shamanic holographic. It's a shamanic holographic view. And that's what I believe that all these ancient scriptures and ancient traditions are teaching. And they teach it through these stories, just like um, Mr. Miyagi taught Daniel-san karate through kind of a roundabout method, all these ancient scriptures are teaching this view of the world that basically quantum physics has now, you know, finally caught up with what the ancient texts were saying thousands of years ago. And it's a, sh- a shamanogram. <laughs> <laughs> a shamanogram. 
Yeah, and not only that, though, about the quantum physics, is there's also a lot of other science coming out now, too. I was just reading uh, this book called The Immortal Mind and Its Science and the Continuity of Consciousness Beyond the Brain by Irvin Laszlo and Anthony Peake. And it's just got, you know, example after example of, you know, the psychic evidence, the out-of-body evidence, the near-death experience evidence about basically what we're talking about, that this access to uh, altered states and altered states of consciousness is is alive and well and happening in all different ways. Right. And that's, and so that idea that, so that, so, you know, people, if you were to say, well, what's my book about or what am I writing about? Yes. I'm writing about the, the, the stars and the myths being connected to the stars, but really I'm writing about consciousness or a theory of consciousness that you just explained what you just said about consciousness isn't from the physical consciousness is from somewhere else and our consciousness the the fact that our consciousness can leave our body and go somewhere else you know you have these people from uh, rick strassman's um study saying yeah I, i you know boom i was blown out of my body you guys still there you bet. You bet. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I was blown out of my body, and then I saw my body, um, and I was outside of it. Uh-huh. This is th- this pattern. The things that, like I said, I just saw that movie for the first time a- about a week ago. I've I've heard lots of interviews with Rick Strassman and, and things like that, but I just finally heard some of his um, subjects explaining it. The words they use are almost identical to the words that people use in near death experiences, where they say, you know. But not only that, there was a, um, it's a, it's a tragic story and, it, and the anniversary of it just happened. This involves the First Nations or, you know, the Native Americans. It's called the Ghost Dance Movement. And the Ghost Dance um, was this dance. It was a, a ritual dance that, um, where the practitioners would do a kind of a rhythmic type of a dance they would do it for a certain number of nights it was a total of five days in a row four nights and then once all through the night and they would and in a large percentage of the participants would go into a trance and we have and this was in the 1880 uh late 1880s 1890s we have accounts from people who describe what it was like when they went into the trance and it's the exact same words. I boom. I was outside of my body. I saw my body. I saw a brilliant light. I moved, I floated towards the light. All the same pattern is is explained over and over. So, um, hmm. and and the and the people who experienced the Eleusinian mysteries, they talk about how their life was changed, and they they no longer had the same fear of death that they had before, and things hmm. like that, because they knew that consciousness can exist separate from the body. So. You know, it's like the, this knowledge was known and, and all the things that enable that experience or that, um, you know, if you talk about these experiences in modern societies that are descended from the Western Roman Empire, you are ridiculed or it's like, oh, okay, you, uh, you know, or if the substances that can assist people in doing that are outlawed. Well, why is that? And by the way, the U.S. Army was very threatened by the ghost dance, even though all the um, accounts of the, like the, the agents, the federal agents in charge of the reservations from the time period say, no, they didn't have any weapons. These ghost dances were not violent. And yet the ghost dance was, they wanted to suppress it. They, they said, okay, listen, you can only do it three days out of the month. Hmm. You know, imagine, imagine if, if the government were to say, well, you can only go to church 
three times a month. And if, if we catch you going to church in the middle of the week, you know, you'll go to jail. Well, you know, that's tyranny. That's oppression. That's why did they want to shut down the ghost dance? Why were they so threatened by the ghost dance? And that led to the Wounded Knee Massacre, which was this horrendous massacre. Just, you know, the anniversary of it just took place. It was in 1890. It was at the end of December. It was right after Sitting Bull was killed in December 15th. He was, he was, he wanted to be a participant. He was starting to get into the ghost dance and that really threatened the authorities. So, what I'm saying is, is that there's something threatening about this, being able to access non-ordinary reality that certain people seem to not like. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Certain powers that be, anyways. Certain powers that be seem to not like. So I want to thank you for going uh, all the way, uh, sticking at that high level and talking about consciousness <laughs> and all that. But I bet you, I bet you, like, I appreciate that because I know it's probably, you know, it's probably easier for you to talk about specifics in your book. So, but I bet you some people are really itching for some more examples of, of uh, the, your correlation between the myths and the constellations and the stars and stuff. So could we... Can we go there for a couple minutes? Some of your favorite yeah. examples of that, just to sure. Are yeah. you getting some like? Are you getting some text messages from Moai that are asking <laughs> that? No, <laughs> no, no, not at all. I just, uh, I just don't want to leave any of that good stuff out. Sure. Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah. Any? Um, I don't know if you guys have had a chance to look at the blog or any that you particularly wanted to hear about. Like, so, um, like, don't, don't like spring one on me that I haven't thought about, but I've right. got like over, I've got like over 50 of them linked up on my blog, um, on a, what I call the star myth index. So we could go to, uh, you know, ancient Egypt, we could go to ancient India, old Testament and new Testament. You know, as we alluded to, I was, I was a literal, I was trying to take the Bible literally for about 20 years. Wow. Of my well, most life. of our audience is U S so we might as well stick with the Bible. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> They are. They're not. Uh, well, they're they're global. Sure they're all over. But the Bible yeah. has had a huge. I mean, that is the one that has had the huge influence on Western culture, and that's the one that is. You know, you don't find as many people through the centuries that continue to hold to a literal interpretation. Let's say of the Greek myths, right? That has that has been stamped out a long time ago. Right. But the um, literal interpretation of the Bible is still you know, very much alive and well. And like I said, I'm not here to insult or put down anyone who believes that. Like I said, it gave me a whole lot of value. And, um, I think it's, 
I think these texts are actually, I'm not one of those people who sees the astrotheology and then puts down the text and says, see, these texts are worthless. <laughs> you know, they're, no, they're, they're beautiful. They're teaching. I just don't think they're, you know, I just don't think it means what you think it means. Like they say in the, uh, Princess Bride, right? I don't think that oh, word. I love you keep that. saying that word. <laughs> I do not think it means what you think it means. So, um, yeah. So let's talk about. Let's say, okay. There's the. How, go, can go I, ahead. Can I, can yeah, I say yeah. one? Yeah. How, how about the? Is there one with the three kings and Jesus and shit like that? Yes. Okay. okay. So I actually have made a a video on that one. But okay, we just good. had we just had, you know, the celebration of Christmas and that does have to do with the solstice, right? So the solstice is the time of the year when the sun is either the highest in the sky or the lowest in the sky. And it's due to the fact that um, you know, the tilt of the earth, right? And you guys are further north than me, so you get the effect, you get the impact even more. Yeah. So here in the northern hemisphere, the winter solstice, of course, happens on December 21st. And solstice actually means sun station or sun, like standing at the station, kind of like the train is at the station before it takes off because the sun kind of pauses there at the solstice. It's kind of like, you know, if you see, a surfer on a wave at the very top of the wave, it almost like hangs and then goes back down faster. And that's kind of at the solstices. Um, there's a, there's a reason for this, but the sun pauses and then it starts to move back in the other direction. So it pauses for about three days and then it starts to move back North. Hmm. And, and so three days after the solstice, which happens almost always on the 21st, but um, because, because of the fact that the earth doesn't turn the exact number of times to get back to the exact same point around mm-hmm. the sun, we've got to have a leap year to keep us from drifting yeah. because of that. Yeah, but, and even that's a crazy fucking system, right? Like yeah, you have a leap year every four years, except on the zeros, except on except the thousands. The yeah. Because it's not exactly 0.25 either. So yeah, that's right. So it's a crazy system and there's been different systems throughout ancient times, they used to have things called intercalary days where they would add in five days. And those were associated with five ancient Egyptian gods and a goddess, but we could, um, we could get into that, but not to get, I tend to, if I'm not careful, I'll go down <laughs> a tangent and lose the thing. You know, Graham asked about the three Kings and, we, you know, yeah, well, yeah. Well, I wouldn't mind actually busting out how the whole leap year thing works because there's probably a lot of people that don't know what we're talking about. Yeah. But, 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 the leap year is just to keep our calendar system. What Up really matters, date, right? yeah. What really matters is the solstices, the equinoxes. Those are actually okay. So here's just real quick. Let's pretend we're all sitting here in the igloo. Me, Graham, Darren. We're sitting here in this round igloo, right? In in wherever you guys are, Alberta, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's cold, but we've got a fire in the middle of our igloo, and um, and then we've got a table in the middle of the, in the middle of the igloo, we've got a round table. And on top of the table, we've got a little Coleman lantern. That's not a native ad. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to give, so we go outside with our fix Fiskars X 27 axe, <laughs> chop some wood. Right. Um, <laughs> so in the center of the table, we've got a little fire to keep ourselves warm. It's a round table and it's a round igloo. 
But you guys in your igloo, I know you've got on the walls, you've got posters of like Jimi Hendrix and Peter Tosh and, you know, other musicians that you like, right? All the way around the igloo, we've got 12 posters on the walls, let's say, right? So now let's pretend that you take a golf ball or a marble or something and you move it around the round table with the fire in the center, okay? And let's pretend that's earth, right? Yeah. I'm getting table or the marble. The, the table is Earth's orbit, and the marble that's going around the edge of this round table okay. is Earth. Okay. And in the middle of the table, we've got the Coleman lantern, or whatever you want to call it. Okay. The fire. That's the sun. That's yeah. the sun. Okay. And on the walls, what are on the walls? Shadows? Constellations. Constellations. Space. Come on, Graham. Keep right? up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, keep up. Graham, we're doing a mental exercise here. Okay. So all around your igloo, you've got stars. And actually, an igloo is a perfect example because if we're in the northern hemisphere, we can't really see the stars at the South Pole, can we? No. Because the fat Earth doesn't let us see down to the South Pole, the, the bulge of the Earth's equator. But we can see the upper dome. We can see the North Star because we're in the northern hemisphere. We just can't see the South Pole right. in the sky, right? So we can look up to the top of the igloo. And the stars, like if we have a poster up there, we'll be able to see that all year round, no matter where the marble is on the table. Okay? Yeah. Tracking with me? Yeah. And, but, but all the way around the igloo, <laughs> I don't want to take too much time on this, but this, the posters that are at the level of the table, that's the zodiac. So if you take your marble and you, and you have a laser pointer on the marble, or the marble's got a laser, and you can shoot a laser from the marble through the sun and hit the igloo on the other side, you'll hit, you'll hit some poster. Yeah. And then if you, yeah. It's like the rising sun, right? Yep. That's it. That's the heliacal rising or the, the, it rises with the sun. So the little people on the marble, as it turns, they're going to see that poster. They're going to see Bob Marley for a few minutes before the sun comes up and drowns them out. That's the, that's the house of the rising sun. But let's pretend that this marble has a laser and it fires through the sun and hits the other side. Then we take the marble and move it all the way around the table while it's still shooting its laser beam. We'll, we'll make a line all the way around the walls, right? Yeah. One circle. You guys tracking with me? You bet. Moai. I like this visual. This makes it easier for me. This is good. <laughs> Moai out there. <laughs> you guys with me? Um, so I made a line all the way around the igloo. That is the line of the, they call it the ecliptic path, the ecliptic path, because that's the line that eclipses happen on, because that's the line that the sun and the earth, that's the plane of the table. The, the plane of the table is the ecliptic plane, not to get too technical, but just that line. Okay, so those constellations are like markers. They're like handles for us. On our little marble, mm-hmm. we're like, where the heck are we in this igloo? You know, from one day to the next. I don't know if I'm on this side of the sun or that side of the sun. Oh, I know. I'll look out to the wall and there's a handle for me. Ah, every time I see the, the Bob Marley poster at midnight, I know that I'm right here. You know, when I'm turned totally, when I'm on the marble and I'm on the part that's turned totally away from the fire in the middle of the table, it's midnight for me. And if I look straight out and I see Bob Marley at his highest point in the sky at midnight, the poster, I go, ah, Bob Marley at midnight. 
I know exactly where I am in my igloo. And then when I get all the way around to the other side of the igloo on the table, the little marble gets all the way to the other side, he can't see Bob Marley at all because anytime the marble is turned towards Bob Marley, the fire is in the way, right? Because the sun's in between me and Bob Marley poster. So now I've got a totally different poster at midnight. You with me? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Darren, you asked for it. Right? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I'm, I <laughs> like it. This is what the solstices and equinoxes are all about because the little marble has a North Pole and a South Pole. And there's one point in time where the North Pole on that marble is pointing as directly as it ever gets towards the sun in the middle of the table. And the, and the North Pole stays pointed. It's like, let's pretend that the, you know, the little door to the igloo, the little thing that you crawl through. Mm-hmm. Let's pretend that the North Pole on the marble points towards that all the time. So when the little marble's going around the table, the North Pole stays in one direction all the time. It's like it's tracked. It's like, yeah. it's like, it's like a turret on a tank that's just tracked on one target. Yeah. Even as the marble goes around, that turret always stays. So when the little North Pole is pointed towards the sun, that's summer solstice for the people on the Northern Hemisphere. Winter solstice for the people on the South because they're like, oh, the sun is so low in the sky. Mm-hmm. But for the people on the Northern half, they're like, oh, the sun is so high in the sky. Why? You know, it's like most direct rays. It's like, hey, let's lie out at noon and get a tan. But when the, when the marble gets all the way around to the other side and the North Pole is pointed away, we're at the very lowest. The sun itself will track across the sky the lowest. And that's the winter solstice. And then halfway across, there's a point where we cross halfway on each side. That's the equinoxes. And at those points, the day either starts to get longer than the night or the night starts to get longer than the day. So when we get to the night taking over, that's the lower half of the year. In all these ancient myths, the lower half of the year is everything between the fall equinox all the way down to the winter solstice and then all the way up to the spring equinox. So what happens is that gets allegorized in these myths, Mm. like the Greeks fighting the Trojans in the Trojan War. Guess who's the upper half of the year? Well, the Greeks are the ones who are the heroes. They're the upper half of the year. And Achilles has this shining helmet. Why? Because the upper half of the year, that's the summer months. And the very top of the year... That's like, that's the summer solstice. That's the top of the year. That's the warmest. That's the happiest. And then the lowest part of the year, that's the Trojans in this particular version of the myth. And the Trojans are associated with all the constellations that are on the winter side. And their hero is Hector. And he's like the opposite of Achilles. And he's associated with horses. Hector is the tamer of horses. And he's... um, Well, there's a constellation all the way down at the bottom of the year that's called Sagittarius, which is the archer, but he's a horseman. Hmm. So a lot of times there's a horse at the bottom of the year. And also um, the Christ child is born at the very bottom of the year in a, like in a stable where you keep horses and goats because that's the lowest half of the year. And it's also the time when the sun, it's like the sun, so the the winter, so, so all these calendars are doing is trying to keep the calendar days lined up with the reality of the solstices and the equinoxes. And then in between them, we've got cross quarter days as well, which is why that's why the British flag has, it's got a 
an X and a cross. Right. Those are the, that's the summer solstice, winter solstice, equinoxes, and the cross quarter days. You got a St. Andrew's cross and a St. George's cross. Anyway, those are all connected to this, what I just said. Those are all allegories. Those are all stories to help you understand all this stuff, but not just to understand all this stuff. They actually relate to, um, you know, our, our spiritual condition. It's not just, oh, this is all to teach you astronomy. It's, it's something much more. But anyway, so that's, well, now, we can, now we can explain the myths in relation to that. Okay, let me say one thing about that because it can be said that the calendar is the, 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 uh, al- the literalism that we're living in and the solstices on their own is, is like that altered state of consciousness that you're talking about, you know. The calendar is like a tool of literalism in a way. Yeah, that's interesting. You're right. The calendar is a mental construct, right? And yeah. The, and the solstices. So the calendar is a, is a created reality. That's yeah, exactly. Right. So, that's what I'm so, trying to get at, yeah. So, so, and that gets back to your question, just quick tangent. You know, how, how, do, how could these people keep this thing going for so long? Yeah. Because their expertise is creating reality. How do you create reality? You create reality with symbols. Yeah. You create reality with stories. Why do we love Star Wars? Why do we love Star Trek? Why do some people love Star Trek so much, right, that they famously kind of like lose their identity inside of Star Trek, right? It's like they got Starfleet Academy on the back of their car. That, you know, that's where they went to school. They, they you know, they want to get ear surgery to look like Mr. Spock or something. You know, <laughs> like we joke about it. And hey, there's nothing wrong with, um, losing yourself in Lord of the Rings. It's only wrong if you like, can't, can't figure out the difference. That's, you know, then it becomes, becomes weird if you're, you know, but creation of reality, that's what humans are all about. That's what we do so well. Our whole reality is created with words and symbols and things. So um, if these people were experts at that, that explains why they're so good at um, imposing their system on the world. And that's yeah. why this, uh, so quick aside. So you're right. A calendar is nothing but a mental construct, but not to get too far. See, we drifted way away from, you wanted to know about the three stars. So Jesus is born. Okay, I, was, I gotta, I yeah. gotta interrupt you for a sec. Is it weird okay. if you glue your cat's hair onto your feet and go as Frodo? <laughs> no, that's not weird. I, I did that one. <laughs> that is fucking weird. <laughs> that was the best. I had the ring around there, I had the wig on. It was, it was really cool. Blue contacts. Yeah. <laughs> Darren's speechless right now. (laughs) Luckily, I had long-haired Mancun cats. I could easily uh, groom them. Oh, yeah. Like peanut butter? (laughs) Okay, so let's get to the three stars. Sorry. Crazy glue. Um, So, so yeah, the the story itself, there's nowhere actually in in the scriptures that we have, there's nowhere that says the birth of Jesus was on December 25th. Okay, that's not in the scriptures, but that is the tradition. Okay, and the tradition is clearly connected to the the very lowest point that the sun gets, which is on the the winter solstice. It rises further and further south for those of us in the northern hemisphere, and it arcs across the sky lower and lower, closer and closer to the southern horizon as we go towards the solstice. And then it pauses there at the solstice. That's why it's called solstice. It's kind of like this sickening pause, like, you know, everybody's saying, is it going to turn back around? 
Is it ever going to, are we ever going to move back towards summer? And then, ah, uh, it starts to move back to the north. And that's when they celebrate the birth of the sun. It's on the 24th at midnight. There's three days after the solstice, right at midnight. Why at midnight? Because when we're turned with our back to the, to the sun, we got the whole globe of the earth between us and the sun at midnight. We're staring off into the middle of this deep space. We're faced away from the sun. So the sun is born down in a cave or down under the earth because figuratively speaking, the sun is under the earth at that time. So that we have legends like the legend of Mithras. He's born out of a cave or out of a rock on the midnight on the 24th. But the Christmas legend is not that he's born in a cave. It's that he's born in a manger. And it just so happens that at midnight on the 24th, there's a constellation that has a cluster in it that is anciently known as the manger. And what is that constellation? It's a zodiac constellation. This is really obscure. Oh, I, I know it. I know you wouldn't know it? Okay. Yeah, I know it. I know it. Is that the honeybee one, the cancer? Yes, it's beehive. So I, the beehive I was, one, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, because uh, this is where Darren comes in and should just say cancer again. <laughs> <laughs> cancer the crab, which is a very faint constellation all by itself, has this very faint but beautiful cluster in it called the beehive cluster. And the beehive also has an ancient name of Praesepe, um, which in Latin means the manger. And the reason it's probably called the manger is there's these two stars in Cancer right on either side of the beehive cluster, which were called anciently the northern donkey and the southern donkey. Well, actually, they're still called that. So it's like there's a manger in between them that they would, you know, they would munch on the hay every now and then. So Cancer and the beehive are not there at midnight anymore. The sky has been delayed Mm. to where they're now there at midnight kind of towards the end of January. But that's the, that's the action of precession. We could get into that, but let's not go on a detour right now. Right. But let's just imagine the sky on the 24th of December. That's at midnight. That's where the sun is being born. And at the highest point in the sky, we've got a manger. And that's why the sun god or the son of God is born in the manger at midnight on the 24th. And then so what we have rising in the east, when cancer is at its highest point, um, is we have rising the star in the east of Virgo, the virgin, right? And we have a virgin birth. And Virgo has this very distinctive star. She has a very distinctive outstretched arm. It's one of the most common features of Virgo. And her outstretched arm figures in lots of other stories, such as in the story of Adam and Eve, the same constellation is like an actress that you see playing, you know, different roles from one movie to another. So in Adam and Eve, Virgo plays the story of Eve and she reaches out and plucks the fruit with her outstretched arm. And the name of the star is actually Vindimiatrix, which means the fruit harvester or actually the fruit harvestress. Um, it's the, the female fruit plucking hand. And then she reaches out and gives the fruit to her husband. And she actually follows Hydra, the serpent. So that's why we have a serpent that is leading Eve. And then Eve reaches out and plucks the fruit and she gives it to her husband. The, the events in the Adam and Eve story exactly follow the layout of the constellations. But anyway, when she's rising 
on the east with her arm out. That's also envisioned in ancient myth as she's holding the baby in her arm. And so we have Isis holding Horus. And when she's holding Horus in these ancient Egyptian statues, she's in the position of Virgo. She's actually, the posture of the goddess is like Virgo. And the same thing when the picture of the Virgin Mary with the baby holding the baby. So when the three kings say, we saw his star in the east, they're talking about Virgo is rising. She's holding the baby. That's the star that they see. And they are sinking down in the west. This is the three belt stars of Orion. That's the three kings. So they're sinking down in the west. They look across the sky and see the rising star in the east. Okay. And that is really the only good explanation of it because in the Bible it says these three, or the Magi, it doesn't say that there's three of them. It just says the Magi. It says they came from the east. And yet when they arrive in the manger scene, they say, we saw his star in the east. And you go, if you're, think, if you're a student of geography or if you're, a, you know, if you're a military commander and you say, let's see, let's start in the east and follow a star to the east, you're not going to get to the west. In other words, it doesn't make sense literally. If they came from the east, how could they follow a star that they say we saw his star in the east? They came from the east because they rose on the eastern horizon, you know, several hours earlier, the constellation Orion with his three belt stars rose on the eastern horizon. They traveled far across the sky. They get all the way to the western horizon. They're sinking down. They've traveled. They've traveled. They've traveled from the east. Then they look across and they say, ah, we saw his star rising in the east. It only makes sense from a celestial standpoint. It doesn't make sense from a literal standpoint. Hmm. So you asked, you know, your question was the three stars in the belt of Orion, in the, in the Christmas story, you know, does that kind of, that shows, that's just some of the details. There's, there's, there's so many details that, that are found in these stories. Like in the Adam and Eve story, when they get cast out of heaven, the serpent gets cast out first. Well, that's the constellation that goes out of the sky first and plunges down into the ground. That's the fall. Then Eve gets addressed, and she's the next constellation. And then Adam, that's Boötes, the herdsman, then he gets cast out. But the Bible says, God tells the, um, Adam, you will return to the dust from whence you came. Well, what's he talking about? The, the constellation is returning to the ground. It rose up out of the east, out of the dust from whence it came. It crosses paradise, the sky, then it gets cast back down to the dust from whence it came. So what does all this mean? It's a metaphor or, you know, we we could argue about what it means, but what I believe it means, this is all a metaphor trying to explain human existence. We have been cast down into this incarnate existence, um, but there's something in us that realizes we came from the spirit world and we came from the stars. So we're, we're a curious mixture of spirit and matter. Hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. So there's a lot, and we can do... 25, (laughs) 25. It depends on where you live and what you think about. I want to hear more about... You're not higher than anyone else. I want to hear more about Virgo. She was quite the star, apparently. (laughs) Yeah, Virgo is the... Well, I I actually... 
She's the goddess. I wanted to get into, we were talking about how it doesn't line up anymore because of the processions. I wouldn't mind yeah. wondering when it did line up. When was the last time it right. would have lined up perfectly? Oh, about 2,000 years ago. <laughs> yeah, so that's a good question, though. So let's, let's delve into that just for a sec. Um, which procession, going back to our igloo, right? The, yeah. the way we know exactly where we are is by looking at the handles that are the stars on the, on the outside of the igloo, on the, on the walls. That can tell us exactly where we are. Because if we put our head at exactly the same spot, let's say we, we erect a, a stone, and then we mark on that stone, this is where I put my chin. And I put my chin there, and I look you know, through that little spot in the mountain. So I've lined myself up, and I look at that spot at exactly the same time, at exactly the same day, I should see exactly the same constellations if I'm able to measure um, exactly where I am. The marble, if it's returned to the exact same spot, I should see the same stars. Mm-hmm. But, and there's, there's debate over what causes precession. Let me guess. There's a, one of the legs on the table is too short. <laughs> yes it's <laughs> somebody needs to get under there and put a little <laughs> yeah the little table keeps wobbling back and forth <laughs> yeah but it's so the main the, the the main accepted um conventional theory is there's a wobble in earth's axis and it's caused but there's principles of physics that cause things to process you can learn about it in physics class like if you spin a bicycle wheel it will actually start to precess mm-hmm. um based on it's um, conservation of angular momentum. Okay, I'm not, a, I'm not a physics expert, but that's what causes precession. So if the, if the North Pole actually wobbles, which it traces out a circle, then um, the North Pole star will actually move over time, right? We're told that in ancient times there was a different star. Polaris wasn't marking the North Pole. Thuban in the constellation Draco was. Hmm. Um, okay. Well, what precession does, whatever causes it, because Walter Cruttenden and um, some others have an alternate theory that says, no, this has to do with um, cycles of, uh, you know, I don't want to say it wrong, but it has to do with cycles of the sun and Sirius kind of being in a binary with each other. Okay. Um, set that debate aside. I don't, I don't want to um, you know, enter into that debate. That's not really my area of study. Whatever causes precession, um, it delays the constellations. And this is really, really important for the myth of Osiris. And you guys may know that Osiris myth is like extremely important. That's why Hamlet's Mill is called Hamlet's Mill because it's the same pattern in Hamlet as it is in Osiris being killed by his brother Set or Typhon, um, or sometimes spelled Seth, but usually pronounced Set. So Set, the brother, kills the rightful king, Osiris. And that's the exact same pattern that's also in the Lion King. The rightful king, which is Mustafa, is killed by his evil brother, Scar, and then the young Simba has to um, figure out what to do. Well, that's the same myth as Set, kills Osiris and then Horus has to figure out what to do and it's the same myth as Hamlet Hamlet's dad gets killed by his evil uncle and then Hamlet has to figure out what to do so it's the same pattern over and over but procession causes the constellation that should rise on that specific day to be delayed and that's what causes the different ages so if 
on a certain day, Aries should be rising on the spring equinox. You guys still there? Yeah. <laughs> Procession over a long period of time will delay its rising on that special day, but it takes 2,000 plus years. We can get into the um, specifics of the numbers for that delay to happen, but eventually Aries will be, will be delayed and the constellation Pisces, which is ahead of Aries um, in terms of its nightly motion across the sky. That's why it's called precession. The preceding constellation will rise in its place. It's like, hey, wait a minute. You're not the king. What are you doing there? Huh. And that's so Taurus. There was an age of Taurus, and Taurus is this beautiful constellation. It's, it's a V-shaped constellation. It's right above Orion, who's the most distinctive constellation in the sky. And that's why Samson uses what to kill all his enemies? The jawbone. Come of on, a bull? guys. Of a bull? Didn't you guys, didn't you guys go to Sunday of school? <laughs> I don't know the jawbone question. The jawbone of an ass. He uses the, of an ass. <laughs> uses the jawbone of an ass to kill the a thousand Philistines. Well, that's a very unlikely weapon, but that's because Orion is reaching up and taking this V-shaped, um, yeah, the jawbone of a bull. In other cultures, like in, um, this is found around the world, like in South America, there's a hero who uses the jawbone of a tapir, which is like a big animal with a snout. You know, that only lives in South America. But anyway, that's the same, that's the same constellation. All right, so in the age of Taurus, um, well, Taurus is associated with Set. So Orion was actually rising with the sun in the age of Gemini, which is right before that. And that's like the golden age. But then he got delayed and Taurus, that is Set, took over and he's popping up when Orion and Gemini should have been popping up. And it's like they usurped him and it's like they held Osiris down under the horizon, which you could put into a myth as they drowned Osiris. They held him under the they held him under the line of the horizon. So Osiris gets thrown into the water by his brother Set. And so that you have all these figures in myth who are sleeping underneath the waves. King Arthur gets banished to sleep beneath the waters of the lake. Or Saturn, Kronos, um, is banished. He's um, banished to the cave of Ojija, uh, where he is sleeping in a cave underneath the waves. Odysseus, who's, who's associated with Orion, He's languishing on the island of Ojija at the beginning. He can't get back home. He's been <laughs> delayed. So the delaying action of procession is super important. It takes a little time to explain it. I hope I haven't put all your listeners to sleep with my long-winded explanation of it, but it's super important. I did make a little movie about it using that kind of mental model of a round table in the middle of the room. Um, okay. Yeah. Where, how do we get to that? Is that on uh, your, it's on the yeah. On so on website? my blog, yeah, on my blog on the right hand side, um, I've moved most of my um, YouTube videos of like interviews to a special page of interview archive there. But I've left a little two minute trailer. So there's a like a two minute trailer that shows like everything we've been saying in two hours in two minutes. But then below that, I've got a um, a YouTube video that's like 15 minutes long that explains the star myths of Adam and Eve and the 
manger scene that we've talked about a little bit. And then below that, I've got one called Procession Equals the Key. And that's kind of an older video I made. And it, um, it's on the right-hand side of my blog. If you open it like on a desktop, I don't know where you might see it if you open it in a little um, handheld device or something. But um, it's called Procession Equals the Key. And my blog is totally searchable. So what I'll do is I always make little liner notes. Um, so I'll create a little page after this interview with um, links to stuff that we talked about. And I'll put a link to that video in there too. Perfect. Yeah. yeah and we'll make yeah, sure we'll, we'll have links to all that too. Grams of pro when it comes to show notes. So. Yeah. Right on. So, um, you know, I kind of went off on a long explanation of procession, but it's really important because that myth of Osiris um, actually relates to the whole Christian, um, the cross See, Osiris gets cast down into a horizontal position into the water. That's like our souls being cast down into this incarnation. But our job is to raise, you know, they would raise, they would, they would show Osiris lying as if he's a corpse lying horizontally, but then they would raise him up. And, and those two positions of Osiris, the backbone of Osiris, they called it the Jed column, corresponds to on the on the zodiac wheel the horizons of the equinoxes is a horizontal position that's when we're thrown down into incarnation and then we're raised up that's the line between the solstices and we you know like the full top of the solstices is at the summer solstice and that's where the upraised arms of cancer the crab is is located up there and that's why you see like in yoga you see these upraised arms or in the scarab beetle of ancient egypt you see upraised arms. Um, um, Moses has upraised arms when he's the battle of the Amalekites. He has to keep his arms raised over his head. And whenever they come down, they, you know, his side starts to lose. These all have to do with the cycle of the wheel, but they have to do on a deeper level with us having to raise up our spiritual component. It's like our spiritual component's been lost or hidden or buried. And we have to recognize it and raise it back up by focusing on blessing and, you know, and like yoga and, and getting, you know, seeing the fact that everybody is actually, everybody you meet is actually this spiritual being as well. They're like an infinite starry, you know, everyone's got this infinite component inside their head, you know, underneath the dome of your, dome of your skull, you've got this infinite, you know, I'm talking to two infinite beings right now right it's like you know don't don't uh don't laugh as we're trying to struggle with you know wrestling with all these concepts don't put down don't put me down just because of my physical um you know condition that i'm in i'm actually this infinite uh you know i've got this infinite side of me too that i'm trying to get in touch with so we should be going around like recognizing the spirit side of people and trying to raise that up instead of trying to put them down into a, you know, put, putting them down. Anyway, yeah, that's yeah, what, we're having a, that's we're a spiritual, we're spiritual beings having a human experience as they yeah, say. Yeah, right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> and that, you know, it's not like, what do we come down here for? Why would a spirit being ever come down? If, you know, I don't know, but it must to be suffer. to learn something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, to learn things that you can only learn with a body or something. Yeah, exactly. Know. Yeah. So yeah. the universe can observe itself. That's right. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, I think there's individual consciousness. I don't think we're all like, you know, I don't think individual consciousness is all 
an illusion, but you know, maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know. Hmm. I, I think, think we're. I think it's all pre-programmed into a USB stick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Darren's a proponent Some of the kid's digital. Some kid's laptop on his way to school. <laughs> hey, I yeah. did have a synchronicity for you guys. Oh yeah, yeah. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, don't, I want to let you guys get to bed whenever you want to. You know. Yeah, we'll we'll start wrapping this up after. <laughs> I know you got to do your synchronicity. <laughs> you got to do your pre. You got to do your pre-show that you do in that you do later. It's like you know. Yeah. Like that's, this, that's you guys true. Are, Time traveling podcasters. Yeah, you know about it. Yeah, I wonder oh what you guys God. already talked about in your pre-show. Yeah, <laughs> but um, you know what I like is how you, you know. First of all, it's funny how you talk about the synchronicities, but it's cool how you note that a lot of guests have pointed to synchronicities or whatever. And I and I will say um, that that question that you ask and the fact that you guys talk about it caused me to kind of think about. A couple of things. One was we already. T- this is this is not as much the synchronicity as this is kind of like accessing non-ordinary. Or, you know, there's more to our brains than we know about. Uh-huh. The part about I, I talked briefly about the sons of Noah. I thought about that for a long time. I was like, what is it? What is it? What is it? And one morning I woke up, and um, it's like I I had the answer. It's like. It's not like I had a dream about the answer. I mean, maybe I did, but I don't remember the dream. It's like I just woke up and it's like, ah, it's these constellations. It's like my brain was working on it while I was asleep. So that was cool. Not really a synchronicity, but um, there's, there's a big difference. You know, if readers check out my first book, The Matheson Corollary, I do talk about the myths of like Babylon and ancient Egypt, but I'm coming from a very literalist biblical perspective in that book and you can see it in that book and you can even see it in some of my blog posts from you know years ago when I was blogging the reason my blog is called the Matheson Corollary is that's the book that I started the blog with Mm -hmm. I started blogging about that book then I had this transition well part of that transition had to do with I was reading in Hamlet's Mill and they're talking about the story of Samson and we've already mentioned how Samson seems to be um, using a weapon that's not really a practical weapon for someone on earth, the jawbone of an ass. You know, maybe you could kill somebody once with it, but he supposedly kills a thousand people. You know, maybe maybe he would have put it down after the first one and picked up a sword or something. But um, because it's a metaphor, it's not real. Nobody killed any, you know, I don't think, so that's a nice thing about all these, just quick tangent. There's places in the Bible where, you know, there's a dad who says, I will sacrifice the first thing I see when I get home. And it's his daughter comes running out and then he sacrifices her. Huh. Well, that's horrendous. You know, that's horrible. Um, it doesn't get preached on very much because that's a difficult passage. It's in the Old Testament. It's <laughs> Jep- Jephthah's daughter. Uh. People have tried to get around it by saying, well, he didn't actually kill her. He sacrificed her by um, dedicating her to the temple where she became, uh, you know, a virgin in the temple. And that was the sacrifice. Well, that's not what it says, but whatever, it's still pretty horrendous that she had to do that because of this rash vow that he took. Well, the good thing is, I don't think the sacrifice ever happened because it's metaphor. She, once again, is the constellation Virgo, and there's plenty of clues in the story that show that, including that she's playing a tambourine, and the constellation Virgo has a circle of stars above the outstretched arm. So anyway... um, quick tangent but so that's not in hamlet's mill but in hamlet's mill i was reading about samson 
Um, fortunately, we don't have to believe that he killed a thousand people with the jawbone of an animal. We don't have to believe that he did all these other, you know, some 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 hor- horrible things that he did. We don't have to believe that he met the horrible end that he met because it's all metaphorical for the stars. Well, as I'm reading that in Hamlet's Mill, and I'd read it many times before, I happen to be going to a Bible study on the book of Judges every week. It was a morning Bible study that met once a week. And sure enough, we came into the book of Samson, or we came to the story of Samson. So as I'm wrestling with it, so as I'm dealing with it in a literalistic all the same time, my mind is working on, you know, I'm starting to not believe that this is literal. So, um, it's not really a synchronicity person. I mean, it's, it is synchronistic. I mean, it could be that you might say, well, yeah, you're, you're thinking about it more because you were in the Bible study. So you were looking at, you know, what could this mean? And then all that's true. But all I'm saying is at the time when I'm wrestling with it, um, you know, it just so happened that that's what it, uh, as I was wrestling with it on my own, I started to have to wrestle with it in a group where everybody's taking it literally. And it really started, that was, that was one of the real turning points towards me having to say, you know, I wrestled with it, wrestled with it, wrestled and said, you know what, I can no longer um, believe that all these coincidences with the constellations are um, literal. just, yeah. yeah, I can't take it literally because it's the same. You know, if it was just in Samson, we could say, well, that's just a coincidence. But you can find it in Adam and Eve. You can find it in Revelation. You can find it in the Gospels. You can find, and then you find it in the Greek myths, the Norse myths. Anyway, at some point, I had to say, you know what? I think they're all uh, metaphorical. Then I had to wrestle with what that meant. So wow. that's yeah, a little. And, and, and thus, you, it's like you're spot on too. It, yeah, thus you start your journey, and yeah. Yeah, so I'm not going to rate that one. I, I like it though because it's the timing of it, right? Like even though you're in this class, it's like it's one of those things where you know when you when you see something and you're thinking about it, and then the next class you go to, you address that exact topic. So it's it. it I think it's pretty synchronistic. I like that. Yeah, I'm not going to rate it. I like it. <laughs> Thank you, Darren. Because you're a tough you're a tough judge. <laughs> That's funny because it's the book of Judges. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, Hamlet's Mill, they kind of make fun of that. They say, you know, Samson wasn't exactly, you know, if anybody was unqualified to be a judge, it would be that guy. I mean, they say he he was more like an unguided missile than a judge. And they say he he probably didn't exactly distinguish the bench, you know, as a judge. You know, they make all these jokes about him because he's constantly kind of going off on a rage and slaying a thousand people or whatever. Huh. So that anyway, Hamlet's so, Mill thing has come up so much lately. I've I've heard the you know I've heard this book being referenced uh definitely a handful of times in the last couple have it months. On the I, show. I know I was looking on Audible. <laughs> I've, I've been looking for it already. So we yeah, have a number of books. Well, so I'll link up to it. It's totally um I mean everyone should have it in their personal physical library is a physical book, but it's totally available online. Um, it's, it was published in 1969. Both the authors are now deceased. They were both professors. They were, I think pretty, you know, old, not necessarily old, but they were experienced professors. Let's just say when they wrote it in 1969, like, you know, I think they'd been teaching since the thirties. So they make a lot of references to scholarship from the 1800s and things, but cool. It's um, it's totally online, but I will say it's not an easy read. It's like one of these books you read a lot of times. And yeah. I will say that I think if you read 
not necessarily my book. My book will help you understand it, but if you read my blog posts explaining, that may help you <laughs> with your reading of Hamlet's Mill because they are famous for not coming right out and explaining it. They'll kind of say, oh, this seems to relate to the stars, and then they'll dance away to a different topic, and you'll go, wait, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tell, finish, tell me. So, yeah, that may get a little frustrating. <laughs> but it's a great book. I mean, Teach him how to fish, man. <laughs> Give him how to fish, teach him how right. to fish. That's right. They're leading you, and they're letting you figure it out for yourself. It's a puzzle. Yeah, that's good. That's what we're all about. That's right. <laughs> All right, man. Well, we'll uh, we'll link to all that stuff in the show notes, and of course, you know, I'd like to thank you so much. It was a it was a great chat. Really appreciate you hitting all those uh, high, uh, you know, those uh, big picture topics right off the right off the bat. It's cool. Yeah. Hey, thanks a lot, guys. I really enjoyed talking with you. I think you have a great show, and I think it's I think it's really valuable what you're doing. Right on, man. Thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Thanks for coming on and uh, come back anytime. Yeah, if you're ever hey. if you're ever in Alberta, look us up. Oh yeah, definitely, guys. Thanks. Speak, okay. Speaking speaking truth to Moai. Nice. Right on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah. see you guys. Okay. Take care. Bye. Welcome back to the Grand America Show. That was a chat with Jim. Oh no, David Matheson. Funny guy. Yeah, funny guy. <laughs> tell all my friends. Grabbed on love stuff. Funny so guy. So, what did you think? That was a good one. Caught me off guard. I was kind of, I was kind of green going into it <clears throat> because it uh, it kind of happened quick. I hadn't read the book, so and I hadn't really listened to him. I know he had been on Red Ice and stuff, but I didn't have a chance to listen to some of that stuff. And, mm-hmm. Fucking, it was pretty mind-blowing. It was one of those ones that, uh, you know, you go in wondering how you're going to get through an hour, and then after an hour and 45 minutes, it seems like it's not long enough. Yeah, no kidding, eh? I think that some podcast and interviewers wouldn't agree, but I think sometimes when you're fresh on the subject, uh, it's a better, like, it's kind of better because you can, you can tease more out of it and try and... I think it's good to know know some of it, right? Which we usually we always do, but it's good sometimes going in fresh, right? Yeah. I remember the one one podcast. Usually one of us is fresher than the other, which yeah. kind of adds a good dynamic. Yeah, to totally. It. We we try and make it like so somebody knows what the fuck's going on. But I remember that one with uh, with uh, the economic hitman. What's his name again? Oh, I can't. John Perkins. It. Yeah, thanks, buddy. I keep forgetting his name. Um, I was so prepared for that. It was like my worst. It, it felt the worst to me ever. It felt, it felt horrible and it just didn't feel like it flowed. And yeah, you dropped the ball. It was weird, man. It was the weirdest thing. I just, like, I was so interested in him and that book. I just crammed for it and it was totally anticlimactic for me in that way. I felt like every question I would have asked, everybody already knew the answer to or something weird like that. You got all self conscious on totally. your shit. 
Oh, yeah, that was a good one. I think we could have Dave back again. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Do part two yeah. down the road here pretty quick. Yeah. Um, yeah. Fuck, I enjoyed it. That's Who's good. up next? Next week, we're going to be releasing Orbs. Orbs. Terry Ray. Terry Ray. Yeah, that was a good chat, too. That was really fun. So he's coming out next. And then in the backstage, we're going to have Zoltan Istv- Istvan. Istvan. Talking uh, transhumanism. Yeah, I think okay. he's running for president here. Or he, yeah. he has run for president, or he is running for president in the transhumanist party. Yeah, I don't know how that works, but he's running for something. I don't know if it's a president yet, but he's in a political party about transhumanism. We'll find out about it we'll all. We'll find more out. Next week. Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> he's got a book out too. So we get, we'll have next Tuesday, 9 p.m. Eastern, we'll have him. And then the Tuesday after, February 3rd, we're going to record our 101st episode special, which will be live as well. And uh, it's really just going to be... I think you, we'll do that one 10 p.m. Eastern, right? Uh, uh, I don't know. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I think we're going to do shoot for an hour, just us and an hour with RPJ and a couple of our key contributors and, and things like that. Yeah. That'll yeah. be fun. Yeah. So I think that's about it. Uh, support the show, grammerica.ca slash moneybomb. Um, spam gram. Spam gram. G-R-A-H-A-M at grammerica.com. Dot com. That's right. Review the show, grammerica.ca slash iTunes, or if you're on Stitcher, wherever you are, you can find a spot to review us. Review us, and uh, that helps as well. And uh, spread the word. Take a page out of Jim Fuller's book and uh, tell a couple people about the show this week. All right, guys, thanks. Yeah, thanks for listening. What plaything can you offer me today? An obscure body in the SK system, Your Majesty. The inhabitants refer to it as the planet... Earth. How peaceful it looks.
and they shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. And I will plant them upon their land, which I have given them, your God. And the mountain shall drop sweet wine and the hill shall melt. Vineyards and drink the wine of them. 
Nine. Engines on. Five. Four. Go. Three. Go. 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 Go